The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. Good afternoon, Councilmember Fred Derhal III. Present. Councilmember Coleman Young II. Here. Councilmember Gabrielle Santiago Romero. Present. Three are present. You have a quorum, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Clerk. Next, we will move to the approval of the minutes. Members have been provided the minutes for last meeting. I have a motion to approve the minutes of last meeting. Motion. Hearing no objection, the minutes shall be approved. Uh, as far as chair remarks are concerned, uh, for the public and transparency, I would like them uh, to know that today we have a film crew from Mexican Town uh, that will be filming today's session. So do want to uh, provide that transparency. They have been given permission uh, in advance to film today's committee. Uh, next, we move to public comment. Uh, if you would like to participate in public comment and you are joining us virtually, please indicate so right now by raising your hand. Uh, via Zoom, if you would like to participate for public comment, raise your hand now. Public comment will be closing shortly. Uh, there are members here in the audience who would like to participate in public comment. I ask that you get your information to Mr. Payne, uh, who is there in the gallery as well. Uh, but to start, we do have a couple member, uh, couple members of the audience that would like to participate in public comment. First, uh, I will call up uh, Mr. Bob Carmack. Then I will call up Mr. Malik Shelton. And I believe we also have Brother Cunningham in the office who will follow after that. And then Mr. Uh, Overwith. Uh, so Mr. Carmack, I, everyone will have two minutes for public comment. Uh, I ask that you state your name for the record and please proceed. Please proceed, Mr. Carmack. Thank you, Mr. Hall. My name is Bob Carmack, and uh, I'm here on this tax issue that Mr. Malik and Ramon Jackson are on. I think this needs to be seriously investigated and so forth. You know, they wouldn't be coming here as many times as they have if there wasn't some problem. So there's a, you know, you got a bonds out, right, where they've been stealing money or whatever. It's got to be publicly known exactly what is going on here. If he got more tax money coming in or something, if he fixed the numbers, people need to know. In uh, 2017, of May, Coleman, what were you doing back then? Coleman, May of 2017, what were you doing back then? You ran for mayor, right? Right? Mr. Carmack, this is not, Mr. Carmack, this is not a back okay. and forth. Yeah, so you won't so, say continue. No problem. And, uh, you know, I guess Revere Doc went through yesterday and so forth. The contaminants that fell off that property into the river, into southwest Detroit, and I know you three voted yes on it, that poisoned the Latinos in southwest Detroit. Poison. There's nuclear arsenic in it. There's asbestos. There's lead. And you voted for them to settle this lawsuit? not knowing that uh, they poisoned all these people, families, children, grandfathers, grandmothers? You did no review? You did no back check of anything? $20 million worth of environmental issues went into the river, into the water system in southwest Detroit. 
That's a shame. Somebody needs to investigate this. Somebody needs to find out who cleaned up the site. Somebody needs to find out where all the stuff went in the water lines. I just support this tax issue that Malik is here for and Ramon Jackson. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Carmack. Appreciate you. Uh, next, we will have Mr. Shelton. Mr. Shelton, you have two minutes for public comment. Please state your name for the record and proceed. My name is Stephen Malik Shelton. I am a resident and taxpayer of the city of Detroit, a longtime resident since 1957. I'm here on a very serious matter. Uh, I do believe it is coming up this afternoon on a line item regarding the limited tax general obligation bonds. I've read the LPD report that was issued to the council on, I believe, January the 26th of this year. Uh, I uh, put before you my response, my written re response, Councilman Durhall. Uh, with, with it is contained a uh, notice of intent and right to, for referendum on the Michigan Transportation Fund bond that was issued by the city of Ann Arbor. Here's a copy of it. Also, uh, the Michigan Highway Fund Act of 1952 stipulates that any funds under Act 51, which the Michigan Transportation uh, Fund gets its authority from, must issue a notice pursuant to the Michigan Revised Finance Act. Also, the Michigan uh, Refund, uh, the Michigan Refund Act stipulates that a notice must be issued, a notice of, uh, of intent and referendum. And not only that, ethically, morally, it is only right that the residents and taxpayers of this city who have to pay back these bonds get notice and or the right to vote on the money that they have to pay back, principal and interest, every last red cent. Ever since 2014, over $2 billion worth of bonds have been issued in this city. And we only got to vote on it one time, and I was on that so-called neighborhood improvement bond in 2020. Okay, Mr. Shelton, and we thank got you. one notice, and that was for the Joe Lewis, a thank $10 million dollar Joe Lewis bond. Thank you, Mr. Shelton. I appreciate you. Uh, we have received uh, your memo. I do have it right here in front of me. Uh, for members of the audience to know, we will be discussing the items he is referring to. Uh, it's going to be 5.3 and 5.5. We are going to have a robust discussion on that. Uh, today in the LTGO bond. So thank you again, Mr. Shelton. Oh, Mr. Shelton. That was the Michigan Revenue Bond Act. Excuse me. The Michigan Revenue Bond Shelton, Act. We get, Michigan... we get everybody two minutes, just right. to be fair, my brother. I just wanted to correct that. Michigan Revenue Bond I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Okay. Next, we move to Mr. Cunningham. How are you doing this morning? Please state your name for the record and proceed. You have two minutes for public comment. Brother Cunningham, um, as always, I have folks. Uh, it was about 20 people that dialed and listened. 313-444-9114, and on Facebook, Forest Servants Cunningham. So out in the community, I've been giving out bus tickets and hand warmers. Um, sometimes people are standoffish, 
And who are you talking to? And I said, I got a free hand warmer for you. And they say, oh, you know, it could be freezing cold. So just have some compassion for those who are taking the bus system because it's hour, two hours before work and maybe hour and two hours after work. I'm asking you directly at home to attend, or not to attend, to ride public transportation after 6 p.m. and on the weekends especially. Um, I was like beating a dead horse trying to get the politicians to get on the coaches. But again, you specifically after 6 p.m. weekly and on the weekends, uh, please ride the coaches and don't be shy. Talk to the person sitting next to you. Give out your car. You could be clergy. You could be uh, work at DTE. You could anybody. I want you under the sound of my voice to ride the coaches after 6 p.m. and on the weekends. And then give me a buzz, 313-444-9114. That's what a couple people had uh, called or texted and said they rode the coaches. So I'm asking you to do so. Also, for the next couple days, please pray for my mother, Cheryl Marie Lyons in the Rivers of Gross Point, and myself, Cunningham. If you can, pray in the Holy Spirit, chant, etc., and drink a lot of water. I've been saying this for many, many years around this time of the month, so I'm asking you to do that for the next couple of days. And um, remember, 313-444-914. In the last 17 seconds, I'm just going to pray it on out. Yera mashan yera maka yera mashan yera mashan yera maka yeri masa. Thank you, Brother Cunningham. <clears throat> Thank you for your advocacy for transit <clears throat> and what you are doing for the public. Uh, next, we will have Mr. Overwith. Please join us. You have two minutes for public com uh, public comment. Please state your name for the record and proceed. But before you do that, Mr. Overwith, I would like to notify the public. Uh, we have pu we have had public comment open for a few minutes now. Public comment is now closed. If you have had your hand raised prior to us closing public comment, you will be allowed to make public comment. However, at this time, public comment is now closed. Mr. Overwood, please join us. Uh, state your name for the record. You have two minutes for public comment and proceed. Mr. Overwood, I can't hear you. You have to turn your mic on. Mr. Overwood, Okay, y'all ready to start? We can go ahead and get started. Something he said struck a nerve with me, and that's the Michigan Revenue Bond Act. Now, right now the city of Detroit is involved and embroiled in the biggest municipal bond fraud in the history of the United States of America. My research has concluded that the city has used a fractional fraud scheme, the CFO and the mayor, under the, presumably under, under the direction of the mayor, has used a fractional fraud scheme. They use a percentage of the millage when it calls for the whole millage to create $10 billion out of thin air. Non-existent $10 billion of value placed in a position of the state assessed equivalent more than the whole real personal property of the city of Detroit. Now, he didn't replace that imaginary, just create wizardry. He create financial wizards, wizardry has created $10 billion. They placed that on a state assist, uh, assessed equivalent and added it to state equalized value to create $10 billion worth of nothing. So they could increase the bond debt limit, double more than double the legal bond debt limit for the state of Michigan, and they have it on the backs of the taxpayers of the city of Detroit. My mama, your mama, his mama, him, 
Me, the rest of us, hundreds of thousands of black individuals getting robbed. And now they're taking black development grant money, future black development grant money to pay off the 40 black development grants they're stealing from the kids. Incredible. And y'all done voted for these bonds, y'all illegal bond payments made by this council last year. 180 million or so illegal payments for bond debt that shouldn't exist. Thank you very much, Mr. Overwith. And again, we will be discussing LTGO bonds in line items 5.3 and 5.5. Sir, 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 sir. Thank you. Uh, I think that concludes uh, public comment for members or residents who we have here uh, in the audience, uh, audience physically. Uh, we will now move to virtual public comment. Uh, Mr. Leonard, how many hands did we have raised before we close public comment? Good afternoon, Mr. Chair and honorable committee members. Today we have four hands that are raised. Okay, we have four hands that are raised for public comment. Each will get two minutes apiece. Uh, who is our first caller for public comment? Uh, Mr. Chair, just to acknowledge uh, that Overwith has his hand raised and virtual comment. Okay. Okay, One. so we only allow one public comment per person, so uh, we can deduct him from, from the number of um, residents who wish to give public comment. So who do we have first for public comment? Uh, first person, Mr. Chair, is Ms. Carol Hughes. Hi, Ms. Hughes, you have two minutes for public comment. Please state your name for the record and proceed. Well, good afternoon, um, Honorable City Council and Honorable members of the chamber, the gentlemen who advocate, Mr. Shelton, Mr. Jackson, Mr. Oberwith, and um, Mr. Cunningham, thank you for your advocacy. Uh, may I address the chair? You may. Um, 5.1 is about an audit of DTC, and it deserves a public hearing or a spirited discussion about the results and a question as to why it was not completed by DTC. And that leads me to my next question is how is DTC funded and do they hold our assets? Are they a holding company? And why was only the people mover audited and not the rest of the mass transit assets, which should consist of the queue line, the people mover, DDOT, and I'm not sure why they weren't all together <clears throat> in this one audit. I'd also like to uh, address 5.3, which are uh, the illegal bonds that are being placed on the citizens. I'd like to have an overview of how the bonds from Detroit Downtown Authority are paid back and why don't we have a say-so in those and in, in, in the, in the long-term, uh, they're limited bonds uh, did you in 2019 find uh, a revenue source for that particular bond? And I would like to know uh, what it is. And I'd like to know who is responsible for paying um, the bond debt interest back. Uh, and um, that is my comment, other than to ask you to um, asked the DTC Corporation why they did not respond to the audit. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Hughes, and hopefully uh, those who will be 
per, uh, participating in 5.1 as well as 5.3 and 5.5 will take note of questions that members uh, of the public have uh, today and respond to them when we get to those line items. Mr. Leonard, who do we have next? Our next caller, Mr. Chair, is number ending in 534. Number ending in 534. You have two minutes for public comment. Please state your name for the record and proceed. Hello, may I be heard? You may. Yes. Uh, good afternoon. There's still a problem that I call into the meetings. I raise my hand and then my hand gets lowered. So if I touch it a second time after it's raised, it should say lowered, not I touch it again and it's raised again. So somebody please check into that. Yeah, please look into these bond issues. Also, the Duggan administration, a lot of their people told us lies about proposition and because when people were complaining about when the misdirected uh, HHF funds directed from keeping people in their homes to bulldozing homes and then they wonder why the population went down. Now you're wasting all this money on David Fink suing the census. Um, that money got diverted and some people are going, well, why weren't, why weren't their homes bulldozed in my areas? And I heard Arthur Jameson and the mayor say, oh, the feds told us where to bulldoze. But Terry Campbell and Debbie Stabenow's office told me that's not true. The city picked the neighborhood stabilization areas and that the feds, they, they were supposed to follow federal regulations in the demolitions, which it appears in many, many cases weren't done. So I urge you to do investigation of the dirty soil, all the cracked sidewalks, all the developers you know, that were not... Uh, held accountable. I can't see the timer, but I do want to give uh, Coleman Young some credit. He's one of the very few persons I hear talking about the ravages of the drug war and the impact it has had on people. And I commend him for that. More Dems should be fessing up to that because Joe Biden was a part of that. So they talk about remedying inequalities, but they're not speaking about the drug war. So I commend you, Coleman Young, for speaking up about those issues. And again, you should stop North End Landing because that was completely inequitable to the people who live right there. It uh, was a violation of the city charter. Thank you, Thank you Ms. Warwick. We appreciate your comments, as always. Uh, who do we have next, Mr. Leonard? Mr. Chair, our final caller is William Davis. Mr. Davis, you have two minutes for public comment. Please state your name for the record and proceed. Hello, this is William Davis, president of the Detroit Chapter National Action Network, and also president of the Detroit Active Retired Employee Association. I, I come before you to request that y'all consider asking for a waiver as it relates to the pension, because the city of Detroit has requested and received a number of waivers. As you may or may not know, uh, for those of us who went through the Detroit bankruptcy, it especially discriminated against the employees that started working for the city after Coleman A. Young became mayor. Uh, because if you had your time in, if you had your 30 years in before 2003, you know, you didn't have to worry. You didn't have to take an annuity savings clawback. Because uh, I started February 6, February 6, 1978, 45 years ago. You know, I think that y'all should ask for a waiver and because the number of waivers have been granted to start paying us back our cost of living at the very least. 
and y'all could work on the, the rest of it later because our cost of living was retroactively took from us back to June 30th of 2013. You know, so that would be a good effort to help a number of city retirees. I've been to countless number of city retirees, you know, just over the last nine years. I mean, countless numbers. And we need to do something. We need to be concerned about that, especially in so much that the rate of inflation has been killing us, you know, figuratively and literally killing us because it's very difficult for a lot of retirees to make it. Y'all should have some compassion, especially some of y'all more than others should have some compassion for us because this whole bankruptcy was, you know, racist and basis, you know, that they did not like Coleman Young, they didn't like city Detroit residents, they did not like unions. So one of the best things y'all could do is ask for a waiver and start repaying our cost of living. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Davis. Uh, and the item that you are referring to is 5.6, which we will have a discussion on today as well. Does that conclude our callers, Mr. Leonard? Yes, Mr. Chair. All right, thank you. Uh, so next we move on to unfinished business. Line item 5.1, status of the Office of the Auditor General submitting a report relative to audit of the Detroit Transportation Corporation. Uh, members have uh, received a review that is attached uh, for the audit of the Detroit Transportation Corporation. This report contains our audit purposes, scope, objectives, methodology, and conclusions, background, status of prior audit findings, the findings and recommendations, and the response from the Detroit Transportation Corporation uh, coming from a correspondence from our Auditor General. I believe we have, I see Ms. Goodspeed on joining us today. And from my understanding, there are also folks from the Detroit Transportation Corporation, if needed, Mr. Robert Kramer, Karen Foster, and Erica Alexander. Uh, so uh, do I have a motion to open up line item 5.1 for discussion? Motion. Okay. So we will discuss line item 5.1. And I see your hand, Mr. Lockridge, or Auditor General Lockridge. Yes, we I have, uh, we have uh, you yes, on Mr. as well. Chair, I'm so sorry. Uh, my camera for some reason is not working. Um, I don't know why, but thank you know, thank goodness I have my deputy here. We are prepared to uh, to discuss the um, the audit of the Detroit Transportation Corporation. Okay. Uh, Ms. Goodspeed will be the lead on that, my deputy, and also uh, I, I have my manager here, Vivian Slaughter, uh, to discuss. Okay, thank, thank you. you, Mr. Leonard. Please ensure that all folks are promoted uh, who will participate in this discussion uh, relative to this report. Uh, that being stated, uh, Auditor General Lockridge, uh, whoever would like to go first, please indicate so uh, and proceed. Let's talk about line item 5.1, the audit of the Detroit Transportation Corporation. Ms. Goodspeed, I don't know if you're trying to speak, but you are muted. Okay. Uh, through the chair, Laura Goodspeed, Deputy Auditor General, with your permission, I would like to proceed and share my screen. Please do so. And is that visible? to this honorable body. 
Yes, it is. Okay. Again, my name is Laura Goodspeed. I am the Deputy Auditor General for the Office of the Auditor General, City of Detroit. And again, with your permission, I would just like to address the two comments from uh, the gentleman in public hearing. First, he asked why the DTC did not respond to the, our audit report. And I want to clarify and make note that DTC, Detroit Transportation Corporation, did in fact respond to our recommendations and the findings. We published that report through eScribe to City Council on January 26th. We received their responses on January 27th, and we uh, provided those responses directly to City Council members. I would also like to let the public know that the final published report on our city's website, the Office of the Auditor General's website, does include DTC responses. And also, I will be covering those responses in today's rep, uh, presentation. The second question that was asked from the public is why does this report did not include a queue line? Uh, Detroit Transportation Corporation is a component unit of the city. The queue line is not. Uh, this audit was a part of our planned uh, audits back in actually 2017. So it's been in process for a long time. And again, so that is the reason why our report does not include queue line. With that being said, this is the presentation before the B Budget Finance and Audit Standing Committee hearing of the Audit of the Detroit Transportation Corporation. This audit was uh, requested through our, or performed through our annual risk-based audit plan. The audit scope is a performance audit, meaning we looked at the efficiencies and effectiveness of the operations of the Detroit Transportation Corporation, I'll refer to as DTC throughout this presentation. Our audit scope period was from July 2015 through June 30th, 2021. The objectives of our audit was to determine the adequacy of DTC system of internal controls over their financial transactions to uh, see uh, DTC's compliance with applicable policies, plans, procedures, and regulations, and to uh, look at the status of prior audit findings and recommendations. Just a little background on DTC. They own and operate the Detroit People Mover, so I, I know a lot of folks will use that interchangeably. The Detroit People Mover is an automated light rail system that runs on an elevated 2.9 mile single track loop in Detroit's central business district. Their mission is to provide safe, reliable, efficient, and accessible rail transportation services that will serve to enhance the business development and quality of life functions in Detroit by augmenting pedestrian travel and by supporting both private conveniences and other modes of public transportation. Their strategic goals include usage, 
to increase the ridership and revenue by providing information and transportation on the people mover system, awareness to increase the visibility of the people mover among the general public, including current potential and non-riders. Service to communicate the system's accessibility, economy, and reliability while providing superior customer service affected by helpful, competent staff, as well as qualifying for funding streams that will enhance the system. Safety. One of their strategic goals is to promote a safe transportation environment with public com comprehension of the procedures and security measures employed to move people while supporting the city, state, and national homeland security initiatives. A quick overview of DTC funding. As I mentioned, DTC is a component unit of the city for financial statement purposes. With that in mind, a little brief definition of what component units are. Component units are entities for which the government's elected officials are financially accountable and organizations whose exclusion will cause our governmental statements to be misleading. The city has provided subsidies, annual subsidies to DTC in 2018, 6.5 million, 7 million in 2019, 6 million in 2020, and in fiscal years 2021 and 2022, DTC did not receive a subsidy from the city. And now we're going to the audit of the Detroit Transportation Corporation that was published in January 2023. I'll cover our findings and recommendations and responses. The first finding, inadequate policies and procedures and design issues over certain financial activities. An overview of the conditions in this finding include DTC does not have adequate documented controls for bank account administration. Their bank reconciliation forms are inadequate and do not capture the preparer or approver. Their accounts payable policy is outdated and is not complete. And the accounts payable documentation has design issues. And I won't read these uh, recommendations nor responses verbatim, but I will touch upon the key points in each. Our recommendations included uh, or include that DTC create written policies and procedures and other standard operating procedures, also known as SOPs, for their bank account administration and reconciliation. We also recommended that man management should establish and provide step-by-step -step guidance for all their accounting functions. DTC responses included, the DTC acknowledged that key management roles were changed in the second half of 2022. General manager, uh, July, 2022. Controller, August, 2022. And their human resources manager roles were changed effective October, 2022. They noted that multiple financial policies and procedures continue to be reviewed by the new management for updating and reissuing 
or developing new policies and procedures where needed. In terms of their accounting, their accounts payable policy and procedure was issued and current staff trained in December 2022. Written position responsibility guidebooks and procedures are current continuously being created. As the above documents are being updated and created, all their accounting staff shall be trained both formally and informally. Additional recommendations for this finding one included, we recommended that they update their reconciliation forms to include a preparer and an approver date and signature lines, establish written policies for their accounts payable, update their SOPs to include these policies and procedures for proper vendor maintenance in the accounting system, electronic payments and prop payment to vendors. We recommended that they update their voucher packages uh, forms to include the preparer and accounting manager signature lines and create a separate form for the electronic funds transfer approvals. DTT, DTC responded that they expect to develop and implement updated forms to address the conditions in our finding. They noted that an updated check request form was issued effective October 2022 and it includes preparer's name and the accounting manager's signature lines. The EFT approval form is to be developed and issued. Finding two, the accounting department lacks adequate segregation of duties over various financial processes. There's a lack of segregation of duties over cash receipts. There's a lack of segregation of duties over disbursements. We recommended that they segregate the cash receipt and cash disbursement responsibilities among various staff and management. Our recommendation is to ensure that appropriate management oversight is provided through review and updates to accounting policies and procedures to assign the incompatible duties to currently filled position. And we noted that in many cases, uh, when we're looking at activities or, or organizations that have small accounting staffs that on the surface, it would seem that you can't segregate these responsibilities, but they can implement compensating controls. And so that's what we're recommending that they uh, establish adequate compensating controls when staffing vacancies do not allow for the performance of normal controls. We also recommend that they vacate, that they fill vacant accounting positions as soon as possible. DTC responded that they expect to fully implement upon full-time permanent positions filled, and that is the adequate segregation of duties. They expect to develop and implement updated policies and procedures to address finding this finding. They noted that uh, the accounts payable specialist position was temporarily filled in August of 2022. The amount county manager was temporarily filled in September of 2022. The revenue agent position was permanently filled October 2022. The financial analyst position permanently filled November 2022, and other positions are expected to be permanently filled in fiscal year 23. 
finding three, DTC did not follow some of its policies and procedures relating to cash disbursements. DTC did not adhere to some cash disbursement accounts, payable policies and procedures, and we identified irregularities in the cash disbursement process. Our recommendations to DTC is that they ensure that individuals who perform and are held accountable for all required accounts payable internal control responsibilities. Continuously monitor the changes in the control environment that may impact the department and implement needed changes timely. DTC needs to review and update the accounts payable internal control processes and supporting control documents to ensure that their control objectives are achieved, assets are safeguarded, and controls are performed effectively and efficiently. They responded in terms of their accounting, that the accounts payable policy and procedure was issued and current staff was trained effective December 2022. Formal training occurred, staff was individually signed in to acknowledge attending the training and receiving handouts. They acknowledge that as new staff are being hired, similar training will occur. Routine and formal and informal reviews will be completed in new processes to address finding and mitigate repeat noncompliance. They also noted that additional policies and procedures related to cash disbursements will be developed and implemented to address this finding. They expect to develop and implement updated policies and procedures to address this finding more in fiscal year 23. Additional recommendation is to consider hiring additional staff or incorporating electronic software solutions to improve their process efficiencies, reduce the risk and strengthen controls. DTC responded that they ex again expect to develop those up updated policies and procedures. And they noted several positions that were filed either temporarily or permanently in 2022. Finding four, bank reconciliations are inadequate and they are neither effective nor efficient. We found that the bank reconciliations were not prepared or approved timely and included old outstanding checks that were not cleared or resolved timely. We noted there was mismatch identification in paper versus Elonic checks within their ledger and other reconciliation and general ledger entry irregularities. We recommended that DTC establish an effective internal control system using the state of Michigan's Department of Treasury's accounting procedures manual for local units of government in Michigan. That was one of our main criteria. We also suggested that they look to the city of Detroit finance directives as a guide to creating and implementing an adequate and sufficient system of internal controls. And I just want to make pause and make a note here. DTC, although they are a component unit of the city, they are not obligated to follow the city of Detroit's uh, office of the chief financial officer directives. But we look to those directives 
and as sort of best practice. If they work for the agencies and departments within the city, we certainly feel that they are appropriate, adequate, and best practice for other entities that receive uh, funds from the city of Detroit. So we often quote our internal directives as uh, high criteria and sufficient criteria. We recommend that DTC take appropriate actions to resolve or clear their old outstanding checks by stopping payment of the check if they don't see, uh, if, if they don't have physical possession of the check. Also, uh, appropriate corresponding entries should be made in the general ledger to void the check, clear it from the list of outstanding checks, and restore the funds to the cash book balance. DTC responded that they expect to develop and implement these updated policies and procedures to address the finding related to bank reconciliation in this fiscal year 23. Additional recommendations, ensure that the reconciling items are documented, researched, and resolved on a timely basis, and ensure that the transactions are recorded accurately and timely within the general ledger. They need to consider hiring additional staff or incorporating electronic software solutions to improve their efficiencies, reduce the risk, and strengthen controls. Again, DTC responded that they expect to develop and implement these policies and procedures relating to bank reconciliations more in fiscal year 23. Finding five, there are internal control weaknesses in the cash receipts process. We reviewed their internal control over the revenue collection process for token sales, direct pass sales, and advertising revenue only. We determined that DTC did not complete documentation used in the revenue collection process. Fairgate revenue was not timely entered, was not entered timely, and DTC did not maintain complete revenue journal records and supporting documentation. And I just want to note that uh, there was no Fairgate collected in fiscal years 2022 or 2021 due to closing of the pandemic. Uh, DTC has just re resumed operations in May of this year, I believe. And uh, so we were not able to test or audit any Fairgate revenues in those uh, two years that I mentioned. But based on our audit, we did recommend that they review and monitor all documents within the cash receipts process to ensure that there are appropriate signatures and that documents exist to support the cash receipts transactions. Record the cash receipts promptly at, uh, at minimum within the 30 days. Provide adequate and sufficient supporting document for all journal entries, including obtaining and recording all necessary authorizations. DTC has responded that they expect to develop and implement these updated policies and procedures to address this and as well as other findings in fiscal year 23. They noted that biweekly and monthly review of bank transactions via a software co-America Business Connect are performed to ensure timely recording of transactions 
in the general ledger, and this was put in place in September of 2022. Written procedures are forthcoming in fiscal year 23. They updated the journal voucher form in October of 2022 and updated other procedures for review, support, and approval prior to posting these entries to the general ledger. Additional policies are coming in fiscal year 23. And we've got two more to go. There were seven findings in this audit report. Finding number six, there are several deficiencies in information systems controls. DTC did not leverage available technology to increase the efficiency of its processes. There is a lack of control over user access and information systems. They did not control vacation accruals in their payroll system and the vendor management controls within the accounting software were deficient. We recommend that they continuously monitor the changes in their control environment, that they review current operational processes, collaborate with other DTC departments and explore available and future technology opportunities to improve information sharing, monitoring and the effectiveness and efficiency of their operations. We recommended that they review and restructure the administrative rights from the accounting department staff and delegate some of those rights to the IT contractor only. In other words, accounting staff should uh, be able to do some things, post entries, et cetera, but they should not have access to some of the vendor, uh, for example, the vendor files uh, and changing the um, the software itself. And so we, asked, we, we recommended that they look at those rights and make sure that there's segregation of responsibilities between the accounting staff and their IT support contractor. Restrict who controls the information or applications. Different individuals um, and often separate departments should perform the initiation, authorization, input, processing, and validation of data. Again, segregation of duties and responsibilities is key when you're looking at your information systems. DTC has responded, um, again, that they plan to update their policies and procedures in fiscal year 2023. They're actively seeking information share technologies, and they noted that there was a presentation of transit track that occurred in October 2022 that they are considering. They have plans to seek consulting assistance to develop a DTC responsibility matrix that will itemize who's responsible for work tasks across the organization. This matrix is a necessary tool to inform them of their access needs. The IT vendor set is set to possibly change soon and they will consider our recommendations as a part of choosing a qualified IT vendor. Other recommendations is that they need to implement an identity and access management policy, which allows access only if the job functions require it. Management should develop these policies and procedures that again, define and address proper, provision, proper provisioning administration, 
segregation of duties and enforcement. Work with the IT contract and vendor to configure the payroll system to accurately accrue vacation time according to DTC's policies. Implement policies and standard operating procedures relating to vendor files and how they are maintained. DTC respond, responded that a new vendor addition adjustment form was developed and it's expected to be implemented this month. Several vendor classes have been created and they are continuously being added. And they expect to develop and imp implement other updated policies and procedures to address this finding in fiscal year 23. A final finding. DTC did not follow some of its human resources policies and procedures. DTC did not follow its HR policies and procedures relating to vacations, performance evaluations, and salaries. We recommended that the IT contractor and, and the vendor again configure the payroll system to accrue the vacation time according to DTC's policies. They need to update their employee handbook to include a vacation time accrual policy. This policy needs to identify the amount of carryover and maximum vacation bank hours that an employee is allowed to accrue. They need to monitor and enforce that vacation time policy. We also recommend that they follow their merit increase policy when granted employee raises. Include the supporting documentation in an employee's personnel file, and that includes the reason for the raise. It might include their employee evaluations. And DTC needs to monitor and enforce their salary policy. DTC responded that they created a multi-departmental team that's included, but not limited to, the HR manager, controller, payroll accountant, payroll vendor, and they're working to audit the accuracy of their vacation and salaries and resolve any miscalculations in fiscal year 2023. They expect to develop and implement, again, updated policies and procedures this fiscal year and the procurement activity has a compensation study that is underway to help inform the development of position and compensation policies. As you know, in the city of Detroit, uh, that is handled by our class and compensation and those salaries are uh, posted in what's officially known as the white book. Lastly, we have some notes, notes of concern. And these are, just as we say, notes of concern. There are things that we find, uh, we found, but they don't necessarily rise to the level of a finding. But we wanted to make a DTC aware of our concerns and so that they are addressed. DTC and the agencies are not required to officially respond to these notes of concern, but we hope that they will take note of them and it will help them as they um, move forward in showing up their operations. We noted that the county department did not pay invoices timely. You know, within the city, we have our prompt payment ordinance. And we noted that uh, they did not pay its invoices timely 
or within 45 days of receipt. Again, they're not bound by our prompt, prompt vendor payment ordinance, but uh, we certainly feel it's a, a best practice. DTC does not have an official salary guide for non-union employees. In other words, they submitted and we asked for their salary ranges and pay scale for non-union employees. It was provided to us on email. And we, we note that uh, they don't have this official salary document. And without an official recommendation, we do recommend that they establish an official salary guide for their non-union employees. The accounting department did not fill budgeted accounting positions. And while we understand that DTC has a small accounting shop, we also noticed that they were not taking advantage of approved budgeted positions. So we've offered some uh, recommendations as to how they can uh, help become fully staffed the, the ongoing filling of temporary positions does not add to the effectiveness and efficiency of the operations. We noted that there were only three permanent employees at the time during our audit, but they had several other positions budgeted. And so we've given them again some additional recommendations, uh, host training fairs, and maybe look to the city as to uh, things that we've put in place to hire and fulfill our employment needs. And last, DTC did not provide evidence of contract monitoring. Uh, they lacked the internal controls that ensured that vendor contract services were continuously monitored and utilized. And in our formal report, we also have given them some, some suggestions uh, and recommendations as to how to improve this uh, 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 in this area. Oh, I thought this. I thought that was it. Uh, they did not provide documentation timely. We requested copies of documentations related to the audit of DTC through their contact person, and we still did not receive all of our requested documents. We want to note that uh, there was, you know, our audit took place part of it through the the uh, pandemic. And so we understand that offices were closed. Uh, we, uh, we do want to note that there was uh, changes in the general management of DTC and that perhaps contributed to the fact that we did not receive our documents as requested. So we want to thank the honorable city council members of the BFA standing committee for this opportunity to discuss the audit of DTC we also want to take this opportunity to thank the staff of Detroit Transportation Corp uh, Corporation for their help and assistance through this audit. Uh, we want to welcome Mr. Kramer as the new GM. And I also want to, if I may, give a shout out to their new controller, Karen Foster, who uh, went to DTC. She was formerly our uh, support person in the office of the chief financial office, office of department affairs. And um, so I, we look for good things from DTC. We appreciate your responses and we concur with your responses. Thank you. 
Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you. Uh, I will not go directly to DTC because I'm sure members have a number of questions. I know I have a number of questions and concerns relative uh, to this audit, uh, and I will allow DTC to respond after the questions uh, just in case uh, there appears to be some or a bit of redundancy. Um, few questions that I have, uh, and if we, can, I, I believe DTC is on. Uh, because these are directly to DTC. Uh, are they still on, Mr. Leonard? Mr. Chair, this is Robert uh, Kramer, General Manager. I'm, I'm here ready to answer your questions. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Kramer. So uh, a little bit concerned. Uh, obviously, it's a corporation not bounded by a lot of city department practices. Uh, but that being said, uh, business is being done within the city. Uh, and when some of these findings come up, it, it is a bit concerning. Uh, so a couple questions that I have, um, and as we look at the findings, obviously the responses are, uh, yes, we're get, you know what, we're going to do this now. We're going to implement it now. Uh, and that's all good once we come through an audit and find those problems. But what I'm more concerned about is just the culture and the environment that exists prior to the, the audit even being necessitated. So uh, I want to talk about a couple uh, points. Uh, in page 21 uh, of the audit, it talks about invoices. Uh, and something that was a concern of mine was uh, that some of these invoices were paid twice. Uh, and for a total of 40, or I'm sorry, 20 invoices were paid twice. So that's 40 invoices. And that's to the tune of $541,854.90. How does this happen uh, within the corporation? How, you know, what, what causes this? You know, I, I understand we want to try to rectify, but I want to know the why. Why, why did this occur? Sorry, I was trying to uh, find my unmute button. Um, so again, I'm Robert Kramer, General Manager of the uh, Detroit Transportation Corporation. Um, I think that uh, it's important to acknowledge, um, as uh, Deputy AG mentioned, um, that the controller um, is someone that has a lot of experience dealing with the you know, best practices the city has been using. And so uh, while it is difficult uh, to understand how that can happen. Um, we've already, even before this uh, uh, report was released, uh, we were already well underway uh, as far as not only to update, but also to train the staff uh, to ensure that we're following uh, standard best practices, which would include simple things like making sure that we're having a, a consistent line of tracking and reporting for invoices. So, let me say, I appreciate that response. Uh, I have been in government and politics for a very long time, so I get it. I understand that you are you want to articulate, hey, we're fixing the problem. We were already in the process of doing it prior to the audit. But again, part of an audit is to find out uh, how this happens to ensure that it does not happen again. And so in front of this committee, I'm asking specifically, though, for this what was the cause of being or, or paying these invoices twice? Was it, you know, based off of the fact that the individuals who were responsible for looking over these in, invoices neglected 
uh, to see that those invoices had already been paid? Yeah, I, I believe that a couple of key factors, again, without knowing the specific, without being here to know exactly what happened, um, we had, a, as was mentioned, uh, a number of the positions that were budgeted in that department were unfilled and or had some significant turnover. And I think some of it was just a lack of consistency and training with staff to make sure that the, the right people were communicating at the right steps along the way. And that, and that is something that is again, basic and, and number one on the list to ensure that we've got the staff uh, and processes in place. So is our answer for rectifying this issue, the hiring of staff, ensuring that they're trained and competent to ensure that this doesn't happen again, is, is that the steps that are gonna be taken? Precisely, yes. Okay, because I, I know we will be, uh, there will be an audit coming again, uh, and I don't wanna be in the same place uh, next year. Uh, so, uh, a couple other questions. I know we spoke, uh, and something that is really concerning, uh, which sounds like the foundation of a lot of these issues is uh, the environment or the culture of the HR department. Uh, you have issues within the findings that state that uh, the company did not even keep track of vacation accruals, uh, which is concerning. Um, there are not positions filled that have been budgeted for. Uh, there is no salary fee schedule uh, or, or salary uh, schedule uh, relative to these positions. What are you doing to, uh, to rectify that as we speak? Uh, absolutely. So um, since, uh, again, I started in July. Uh, since then, we have had a uh, total changeover in the HR department. So we have a new HR manager and also new HR staff underneath her. Um, and she's been working very closely with Mr. Fo uh, with Mrs. Foster, uh, our controller, and has experience uh, both in transit and in government. And we've made some excellent progress so far in really filling uh, as many of the open positions. This is not just in administration, but in transit police, also in our operations and maintenance areas. Um, but really uh, ensuring that, that the paperwork is consistent and that we've got a system in place to, to file and track the paperwork. Um, and then uh, lastly, which was also mentioned in the report earlier, uh, we've got a um, uh, contract uh, solicitation on the street, excuse me, for a compensation study, which can mean a lot of different things. But in our case, uh, it's really going to help us not only as far as the compensation uh, market analysis, uh, similar to what the city does for our non-union uh, non staff, but more importantly, it's going to review all of our job descriptions, our org chart, and make sure that we've got uh, progression steps and salary ranges for all of the different positions, which uh, up to this point, uh, at least in, in recent recorded history, uh, have been absent. So, uh, and again, I, 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 can, I guess I can appreciate the steps are being taken. I understand that there is new leadership there. Uh, so I'm not hammering the new leadership. Uh, but what I'm stating is, is that even with new leadership coming in, I'm sure there are folks that are still there that were there. Um, and, and again, you know, the best apology is change behavior. Uh, and so when we talk about, you know, holding people accountable, which I believe is important, uh, what are some of the disciplinary actions that have been established by the DTC to ensure that if something like this happens, uh, that one, there's some disciplinary action, uh, maybe that person does not need to be over that specific job anymore, 
you know, that I think that speaks to changing culture. Has there been discussions relative to disciplinary action um, uh, to ensure that, that this doesn't happen again? Yeah, I think that the, the best way to demonstrate that is the one of the recommend or the actions we proposed is to have a official and uh, publicly available, so to speak, um, a responsibility matrix. I think that that's the first step in holding people accountable is making sure that it is, it is uh, painfully clear exactly who is in charge of which of these important steps. And um, you know, that will be the basis for us moving forward, not only in, in discipline, but even short of that, you know, evaluating the effectiveness of the performance of each of our key departments. Okay, a uh, couple more, then I will turn it over to my colleagues as well. Uh, I know you are not bounded by the ordinance relative to uh, paying invoices timely, uh, as we have done so here for the city. Uh, but it is a recommendation, uh, at least from my myself, that you guys would kind of adhere and try to model to that as well. Uh, again, uh, you're not bounded by that. Uh, but, you know, we're doing business here in the city of Detroit. Uh, and I believe that, you know, even the partnership that we have is reflective uh, of, of what we do here on the, at the city as well. Uh, residents know, don't know the difference uh, at times um, and, and the intricacies of that. Uh, however, uh, we want to ensure that anyone we're doing business with, we hold them to the same standard as well, even if they are not bounded by that ordinance. Uh, and finally, uh, just a concern about uh, the documentation uh, relative to this audit. Uh, under one of the notes of concerns, Section E states that the Office of the Auditor General requested copies of documents related to the audit of DTC through their designated contact person, the controller, and they did not receive all the requested documents. Could you please speak to that? Yeah, I, I, again, without being here, I can't give you specifics on exactly what happened. I think that the pandemic may have played a part of it, but, but this audit obviously stretched um, since before the pandemic was starting as well. Um, we're, we've undertaken uh, steps already uh, to review and better organize both our paper files and also the, the process had been started as far as uh, electronically organizing and, and archiving our files as well. And that's uh, high on our list uh, with our IT vendor to make sure that we can do that. I think that would be critical in making sure that not only the OAG, but whether it's council or any members of the public or our federal or state partners um, that we're able to produce accurate documents um, at a moment's notice. It's something that's high on our list, again, without knowing exactly what happened for each document, I can say that it will not happen again. And, and I'm appreciative uh, of that. Finally, I know you speak about having some of these changes in 2023. Uh, there are no specific dates, obviously, but can you give me at least an idea of a timeline? We're already in February now. Uh, do you guys have a goal set on when you can achieve some of this? Yeah, so the, um, you know, our, our recommendations mentioned fiscal 23. For DTC, our fiscal year ends in June. And so it is It is at least our goal uh, that we are aspiring to meet to have, uh, to basically be able to check up, check off all of these recommendations by the end of June of this year, um, if not shortly after that. And that would include not only the policies, the training, um, uh, but also to have um, longer term SOPs in place 
the compensation and, and job position review. So we, we are planning, our goal is to complete the, the vast majority of these by, by June. All right, thank you very much. Uh, now I will turn it over to colleagues uh, as well. The chair recognizes member Santiago Romero. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair. I just have a few questions. Um, the first, I believe, uh, is for our, our Auditor General. The findings that you shared with us today, are these reoccurring issues that you've seen in the past or are these new? Yes, uh, let me go to our status of prior audit findings. I can share with that very quickly. And this would be on page seven of our audit report. So a prior audit finding was internal control weaknesses in the cash receipts process. We found that it was not resolved and it is discussed in finding five of this current audit report. There were other conditions in the prior audit report that we could not test and I kind of alluded to that earlier. We could not test the, uh, these following conditions because the trains were not operating. And that uh, prior audit finding was that checks and money orders received through the mail were not immediately endorsed for deposit. Uh, we found previously that the door to the pass and token sales office was unlocked. And even when it was not occupied by the cashier, we uh, found previously that types of, certain types of payments, cash, check, credit cards, received by the passing token sales office, office were not always collect, correctly rung up on the cash receipt, cash register, and that some cash receipts uh, were not recorded in the centralized log. So yes, those were, I would say, kind of serious for our audit findings associated with cash receipts, but again, we could not test those this audit period. Okay. Another prior audit finding was that incompatible duties and access rights related to the cash disbursement process. That finding has not been resolved. It is a repeat finding. And uh, there's two relevant conditions that you will find repeated in finding number six and finding number two. And those were the status of the prior audit findings. And again, you can find that on pages seven and eight of the audit report through the chair, I should have said. Thank you. Uh, through the chair, just a few more questions. All the recommendations and all of the commitments to implement new policies and procedures sound good, but is there a timeline of when we're gonna implement these uh, changes? I believe that uh, maybe our GM can answer that. Uh, yes, uh, through the chair, um, as mentioned, our our goal when we say fiscal year 23 for, for DTC, that means by June. Um, we'd be happy to provide uh, updates along the way as we go, but it is our um, intent and, and what we've already been working on is to get these in place, uh, If for those that aren't already in place, to get them in place uh, very quickly. Okay. Okay, yeah. 
timelining out when you're gonna be implementing these new policies and procedures, I think will go a long way, along with giving us updates, uh, just so that we know that we are on the right path of ensuring that um, we're fixing these issues that, that we're finding. Um, my last question through the chair is, and I'm not sure if our GM knows the answer to this, um, or our Auditor General, but it was mentioned that technology was not being used to provide efficient services. Is this technology that was purchased through the city or, or which technology is this um, that was not that was not utilized? I'll defer to Deputy AG or I can I can try to answer it. Okay. And if not, I can defer that specific question to the audit manager Vivian Slaughter through the chair. Ms. Slaughter, please state your name for the record. Uh, through the chair, the technology involved Slaughter, with please. the payroll system Ms. Slaughter, that could have you, set. Really, really I'm quickly. I'm sorry, Vivian I, Slaughter, Auditor General. Thank you. Uh, through the chair, the technology involved the payroll system where they could have set limits for the vacation and sick time accruals. In addition, they had modules that were purchased for the financial software that they could have implemented as well. Understood. Uh, through the chair, just a quick follow-up. Um, GM, I know that you're new to this role, but do you have any idea of why it wasn't being used? If you have it to be able to do your work more efficiently, do you plan on utilizing this? Is it good enough for you to use? Do you think about using, are you, are you thinking about obtaining different technology? Um, I, I am someone that believes that we should use whatever we can to make our lives easier, and it seems like we're not utilizing technology that'll make the work more efficient. Yeah, absolutely, and uh, I appreciate Ms. Slaughter um, clarifying that. So that's something that uh, our controller and HR manager, in addition to uh, myself, um, we have been evaluating the different modules that uh, were, were being used. There were a couple that had not been fully utilized uh, there's also a couple of different components that factor into our time card versus uh, financial software. So that's something that we're, we're actively um, evaluating, not only to see if there are features we can turn on, or in some cases we're looking at maybe just getting some training to be able to make sure we can fully utilize what we have, but also keeping track to see if there's other solutions out there that would be more effective. So that, that is something that's top of mind for us. Um, in addition to uh, one of the responses mentioned, tra uh, TransTrack, is a system that would help us not only with financial elements, but also with, with key performance indicators across the organization. So those are high, high on our list um, to see, make sure we're using what we have and evaluate other options that are out there. So hopefully that answers your question. Thank you. Yes, thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Member Santiago Romero. The chair recognizes Vice Chair Young. Thank you, hello everybody. Good to see you guys. Um, I wanna talk to uh, Ms. Godspeed, uh, first, if I can, I just wanted to ask you, from your perspective, do you think that this is an issue of accounting technology, or do you think this is just an uh, issue of just new accounting altogether? I mean, I'm looking at some of this stuff, three of eight, 30, more than a third of reconciliations were not completed within 30 days after the statement date, 51%. Of checks were not paid out to vendors or not on time it's more than half I don't see this as a technology problem or a problem in terms of you know making adjustments I see this is we just need a new a complete overhaul in terms of accounting period 
If I'm right, tell me why. If I'm wrong, tell me why. I'll, I'll respond, and then I would ask um, the audit manager, Ms. Slaughter, to, to chime in as well. Uh, based on my review of the work that was done, um, I, I think it's a combination of a couple of things. Certainly, the lack of staff, the okay. not filling uh, the, the permanent positions okay. with permanent people to do the job is certainly a big factor. That's the fair. other factor is uh, if you have those people there, and but you have outdated policies and procedures that don't reflect the current environment or current needs, then that's another underlying factor. So when you put those things together, you don't have enough staff because maybe for whatever reasons you haven't filled those staff or if you have temporary people that are rotating, it's difficult to update your policies and procedures and to adhere to the policies and procedures. And then in terms of the software, as Mr. Kramer indicated, it could be a factor that there was a lack of training, a lack of understanding of how that software should work. Uh, not to, to digress, but we see it all the time you know, many companies and activities, even within the city, are purchasing what I call vanilla software, off-the-shelf software. That software is designed to to be the, the end-all to everybody's issues, you know, or needs to use that software. So it, it, it comes with everything you might want in the software, but it takes that organization really needs to look at how do I make it work for our organization? Do I need 100,000 fields to use? And and that is something that I see lacking across the board, even within the city in terms of utilization of technology. So I think those three big factors probably, you know, is the underlying reason why you have these issues. Vivian, do you want to add to that? Please. Uh, no, I concur, through the chair, I concur with Ms. Goodspeed that the primary problem was the lack of appropriate staffing and using temporary staffing to fill in those positions who were not aware of the policies and procedures and who did not follow them. And that's why you had the majority of these issues. Yeah, I, I was getting ready to say, because Ms. Goodspeed did a real good job of breaking that down and, and giving me <laughs> a whole different perspective. Because at first, I'm just, and, and I'm not judging people there. I know you guys are hardworking. I know you guys are putting in work. You know what I'm saying? But it puts a whole new perspective because when you're looking at it just from a numerical standpoint, when you're talking about seven out of eight, 85% reconciliations we've reviewed had old outstanding checks that had not been cleared or resolved, it's like, that's just almost to the point of outrageous in terms of doing, and it's a reflection of the city. So if you're doing business with the Transportation Corporation, you could expound that to doing business with the entire city. It not only just hurts us in terms of doing business with vendors, in terms of the Transportation Corporation, but the reputation of the city as a whole is harmed by that. And it makes it bad for us to do business because everybody knows the people mover, and I'm connected to this personally, I'm gonna be honest here, because my father was the one who built the people mover. So there's a personal connection, but it's also, 
a um, in terms of a usage, in terms of people actually using the people mover, in terms of people getting around on the people mover, relying on the people mover, and what that will become over time. Because I don't think, even though it's it's not connected, the people mover will eventually, I think, over time. I don't know if I'll be. I hope I'm allowed to see it. But over time, I think there will be a connection between the people mover M1 and rail that actually goes out of the city and into the suburbs with mass transit. And when that happens, we have to have a transportation corporation that's on point if we're trying to get to the next level because it's going to harm the economic development that the city could be experiencing if it's not. And you know how, and, and you guys know about that anything. If, if, if they're not going to trust you with the little stuff, they're not going to trust you with that type of stuff. And so I understand what you're saying. I thank you, Ms. Godspeed, because you kind of taught me off my soapbox a little bit here because I'm like, <laughs> what is going on? But now that I understand it, now that I have a new understanding, I'll definitely look into that and consider that. So thank you so much, everybody, for your time, Mr. Chair. That's all I have to say. Thank you, Member Vice Chair. And you hit on some great points, particularly towards the end, relative to how we're looking to expanding. So that goes right into my last question. Uh, I know that it seems like a plan has been set to rectify some of these issues, uh, resolve some of these findings from our Auditor General. What plan of contact do you have uh, to correspond with us and maybe give us an update along the way to let us know how that is going. Uh, I would rather not wait till the next audit uh, to see uh, what some of the progress is, uh, even to the point where in six months by June, and I'm holding you to that, I want you to know that uh, as the discretion, with the, having discretion as the chair, I can bring you back here uh, in June to see where we are relative to hiring and, and fixing some of those findings. Uh, but, you know, it'd be great if you can kind of communicate some of the progress that is going on uh, with us as well as other members um, relative to the DTC. So that, that would be my hope. Are, are you open to uh, that level of communication and kind of giving us an update of where you guys are? I, again, I know it, it seems as if we're beating up on you guys today and you're the new leadership there trying to fix an issue. I get that. Uh, and I'm glad that we have folks there. Uh, some who have come from the Auditor General's office to kind of help tighten things up. Uh, but, you know, is, is, do you, uh, is there a plan uh, or, and are you open to uh, giving us uh, some information relative to progress along the way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I know uh, or I can strongly assume that the OAG's office is going to closely monitor our progress on the responses we provided to them. Um, but, uh, you know, our, our plan vision, this is not a specific with details plan, but uh, we would like the, the council, including this committee, uh, to be uh, to have people move in front of mind uh, for, for good reasons, of course. Um, and the best way to do that is to communicate what we're what we're doing areas that we're improving um, uh, regularly. Uh, so uh, we'd be honored to come back if, if you want to set a time for June or, or we'll find other ways, maybe less formal than a presentation to provide updates along the way. Uh, but, but we are, are happy to be uh, part of your agenda. And uh, just my, my last comment would be um, that, you know, part of the reason that all of us, meaning the, the new staff people and also those who have been part of the people mover since uh, many of our staff have been here since before the train started running, uh, we're all uh, personally and seriously invested in this. It's a unique and important system. We're eager to strengthen it and also to, to grow the value to the city and the residents. This is something that can really be beneficial 
and it's something we take very seriously and, and have a lot of passion for. So we really appreciate uh, the care and attention from the OAG and from the, this council's committee um, and are eager to provide updates in the future. Thank you very much, Mr. Kramer. Uh, Ms. Goodspeed, I'll let you have the last word uh, so we can uh, wrap this up. I know we have a few more robust discussions on our agenda today. So Yeah, and I'll make this very brief through the chair. Thank you. I just want to make a comment. While we're not uh, equipped or staffed at this point to do a formal follow-up, and as the uh, chairman, uh, Durahal, said, he they want a response. What we have implemented is our implementation tracking, and that's that big document, and that allows DTC to respond to our findings and give us dates. So with that being said, we would ask that any communication that you submit to this honorable body that gives an update on your status, we would also look for that. We are beginning to track those responses and updates in our new automated uh, uh, auditing software, and so this will help us be prepared for the next audit. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Goodspeed. Uh, and so with that very robust discussion, look forward to what is to come. I know we will be also having a further discussion because we are in budget season, uh, as we talked about last year uh, relative to the people mover. So uh, would like to see, as they say, uh, what our ROI is going to be if we choose to invest in this, but we want to make sure everything is together. Uh, particularly relative to accounting uh, and procedure for the Detroit Transportation Corporation. So, members, with that, uh, do I have a motion to receive and file line item 5.1? Motion. Okay. Hearing no objection, line item 5.1 will be received and filed. Thank you, everyone, today for joining in this discussion. I uh, really appreciate that. Thank you, Chairman Durham. Thank you, Mr. Auditor General. Next, we will move to line item 5.2, status of the city clerk's office, city planning commission, submitting a resolution of authorization for a neighborhood enterprise zone certificate application for rehabilitation of a 56-unit residential apartment building located at 1516 Vinewood in the Hubbard Farms neighborhood enterprise zone area. Uh, members, uh, if I have a motion to take up line items 5.2 and 6.3 at one time, is there a motion? So moved. Thank you. All right. So it's okay, Mr. Vice Chair. So line items 5.2 and 6.3 uh, we will take up together. Uh, to the city clerk and the planning commission, uh, we, uh, as we were establishing today's uh, agenda, my office noticed that 5.2 and 6.3 seem to be similar. Uh, are they the same? I can get you an answer on that, Mr. Chair. Okay, thank you. I would appreciate that because as we had contacted the clerk, uh, we did not uh, know if there was a duplicate or not. We want to flush that out, and if that is the case... Because uh, I do remember line item 5.2 being brought back this week from last week's committee hearing. Or, or so that's 5.2, and what's the other line item? 6.3, Mr. Clerk. 6.3. I will look into it. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so uh, hopefully we can get an exped expedited response by the end of this presentation. 
Uh, but that being said, not knowing if they're different or not, we'll take them both up at this time, uh, members. And if they are similar, I will be asking for a motion at that time to remove one from the agenda. Uh, today, looks like we have Mr. Gulak as well as the developer on. Uh, I was not here uh, last committee meeting, but I assure you I was watching uh, via remote location. Uh, and I, there were some questions with this. I don't know if we need to go over the entire presentation again, but if you can give a brief overview, uh, Mr. Gulak, of this NEZ again. There were some questions that remain from last week's committee relative to parking, uh, as well as relative to ADA compliance. Uh, hopefully we can get some information on that. So take it away, Mr. Gulak, and then uh, whoever would like to proceed after that, please do so. Uh, yeah, thank you, Mr. Chair. Uh, Chris Gulak, City Planning Commission staff. And yes, my interpretation is 5.2 and 6.3 are the same, but we'll have the clerk verify that. And yes, last week this was presented um, to the committee. Um, this is a, a rehab of an existing historic building. It's in um, Hubbard Farms Historic District. It's a four and a half story building. Um, it's been vacant for a, a long time, uh, built in 1926. And the developer is um, uh, Blue Ink Vinewood LLC, which is made up of the Inkwell partners. Um, they're proposing to uh, rehab the building and to create um, 56 rental units. So this is not kind of its rental. So there'd be 37 one bedrooms, 19 two bedrooms. Uh, we reviewed that last week, the, the cost per unit um, and the affordability component. They're proposing um, that uh, 11 of the units would be no greater than 80% AMI, but they, they, they're assuming at the beginning that the, a lot of the rents would be naturally affordable at 55 to 80% AMI. Um, last week, uh, we did indicate that the building it would be challenging because of its uh, age to be handicap accessible uh, on the outside and within due to the staircases. There is an elevator in the building, which they're studying to try to get uh, reworking. Um, and so let's see. And then we did talk about parking. The site does have a small vacant area north of the building. Uh, uh, there is, it does appear there's on-street parking available. I do believe Councilmember um, Santiago Romero did hold, bring it back in one week to, I think, further study the parking uh, situation. Um, our office did reach out to Hubbard Farms Community Group. They are supportive of the project. Um, they didn't want to see any nearby houses knocked down for parking. So that I think I'll, um, that, that concludes my overview if you, if you have any questions. Okay. Uh, to the developer, anything you'd like to add uh, or Mr. Barr? Yeah, sure. Um, hi again, Ryan Zampardo with Inkwell Partners. Um, I know in the time since uh, last week's meeting, um, Mr. Barr had a conversation um, with, with you or your office, uh, Mr. Chair, and and I spoke uh, along with Mr. Barr with um, Council Member Santiago Romero about the parking issue and the uh, accessibility issue. So. Um, just to quickly recap on the parking front, we do uh, have control over a vacant lot parcel immediately to the north of the building. Um, it is not currently permitted for uh, parking by right. Uh, so there would require a um, BZA process to get that turned into a parking lot. Um, but we're planning on engaging both with the adjacent neighbors and the Hubbard Farms Neighborhood Association 
to try to understand the community's preference with regard to uh, whether they would like to see that uh, as parking for the building or remain as as green space as it is today um, and then take our cues from from that and, and move forward through the bza process to put a parking lot in if that seems to be the general uh, direction that that we hear from the neighbors and then with regard to accessibility uh, as mr gulag mentioned uh, the building was built you know, uh, over 100 years ago. So there's a lot of weird stairs uh, all, all throughout the inside uh, that, that make it challenging uh, to truly make it an accessible building. But we do have an opportunity uh, in some of the garden level units, uh, kind of the half story below, uh, to provide uh, some accessibility there. And we've discussed with our contractor of pre-wiring the two half staircases that go down to the garden level um, such that if we do have a tenant who tenant or tenants who are uh, looking to to live in one of the garden level units that uh, we could then add a, a lift that would allow them to get down the half staircase and access those units. Okay. Uh, so a couple questions that I have. I know uh, there was mentioned that Hubbard Farms is in support of this project. That is not in my district, uh, so I'm always sensitive to the member whose district it is. Uh, but my question is, I, I guess they said there was support from Hubbard Farms, or what it sounded like is that you still need to engage with them on the parking situation? Yeah, with regard to, I, I believe Mr. Gulak had some direct communication with uh, some of the neighbors, but with regard to the parking, um, that is something that's just been anecdotal so far with, with engagement with neighbors. We haven't hosted an official session, um, and that's something that, that we plan to do uh, you know, in parallel with, with working on the, the rest of the building. So that's something where uh, we'll keep council member Santiago Romero's office updated on the timing of that because i know her and her staff were interested in potentially participating okay and then the second thing was relative to the ada compliance i know you mentioned a lift uh for the garden units which i would assume are the lower units are you planning to make the, the, is that where the ada units will be uh uh for the building and is there a plan to do the lift or your plan is to do it as needed and one of the reasons why i ask that is uh i can understand uh utilizing you know i, I can let me say understand yeah i can understand uh it being put in there uh as needed but uh, one of my concerns is is what if there is a member of the disability community that is interested there uh and they make they want to make their decision based off of what is already available uh, are there any thoughts behind that? Any plans to say, hey, you know, we do want to make this attractive to everyone, stating, you know, stating that or, or having uh, the amenities uh, that are already present more so than when some amenities that may need to be built? Uh, are, are, what, what are the thoughts behind that? It's a good question. We, we had some discussion with uh, Council Member Santiago Romero on, on the same topic. Uh, a couple thoughts that we had on this were one in the marketing of the the units online through the, the um, Zillow and apartments.com and whatnot we can make reference uh, to the fact that there are uh, there is accessible accommodations available at the building 
Um, and then also we have posted some units previously on the city's website for affordable housing. And I, I believe there's a box you can check on there um, with regard to accessibility issues. And so we would look to advertise that on the city's website. Okay, thank you. That answers my questions. Uh, any further questions, comments, members? Okay, uh, so I am satisfied with that. Uh, thank you. I appreciate the dialogue uh, with my office as well as uh, Member Santiago Romero's office, whose district it is. Uh, I, I generally take the lead from her from for things in her district. Uh, and so with that, members, is there a motion on the floor for line item 5.2? Motion. Is there a motion to send line item 5.2 to formal with a recommendation to approve? Motion. Okay, hearing no objection, line item 5.2 will be sent to formal with a recommendation to approve. Members, do I have a motion to remove line item 6.3 from today's agenda? Motion. Okay, hearing no objection, line item 6.3 will be removed from today's agenda. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I appreciate it, and thank you for your responses to the questions and the concerns as well. Thank you, Mr. Thank Chair. You. Next, we will move on to line item 5.3, submitting report relative to public notices for the Detroit Limited Tax General Obligation, LTGO bonds. On January 17, 2023, public comment was made by Mr. Malik Shelton during the formal session, and he asserted that adequate notice was not provided to the public concerning LTGO bonds. Council President Mary Sheffield requested LPD to review documentation provided by Mr. Shelton and provide answers in writing regarding this topic. This is something that was brought back last week as well. Members, do I have a motion to take up line items 5.3 and 5.5 together? Motion. Thank you, and do I have a motion to discuss line items 5.3 and 5.5? Motion. And just for members of the public to note, line item 5.5 is the status of Council President Mary Sheffield submitting the memorandum relative to public notice for Detroit LTGO bonds. Uh, here to join us today in this discussion, this is something that we've been waiting for uh, and want to have a robust uh, discussion on this. We have Mr. Whitaker, we have Mr. Corley joining us today. Uh, we have Mr. Naglik. Uh, joining us uh, as well from the OCFO's office, and just in case, uh, we have someone from the law department here uh, as well. Uh, so first, uh, I will turn it over to Mr. Corley. Uh, please uh, 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 be prepared to give your discussion and presentation uh, and let us know about this uh, LTGO bonds uh, and the uh, obligations. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, committee members, good afternoon. Council President Sheffield requested LPD, Legislative Policy Division, to review documentation provided by Mr. Malik Shelton, asserting that adequate notice was not provided to the public concerning Detroit limited tax general obligation bonds. Please note that limited tax general obligation or LTGO bonds are non-voter bonds and pay for out of the city's general fund and are not paid for out of property taxes based on the property tax debt millage. In contrast, unlimited tax general obligation or UTGO bonds, and, and for instance, the prop in bonds are UTGO bonds. Um, those are bonds that are voter authorized bonds paid off 
from property taxes based on the city of Detroit's property tax debt millage. LPD obtained a response to this issue from the city's bond council, Miller Canfield, that was provided to us through the office of the chief financial officer, and Mr. Nagelik uh, was instrumental in getting us this um, response from the um, bond council. Miller Canfield's responses are as follows. The only bonds issued by the city since 2014, and the reason why there's the year 2014 is because Mr. Shelton is speaking about bonds issued since Mayor Duggan came into office, which was in 2014. So the only bonds issued by the city since 2014 pursuant to any statute that requires a notice of intent were the 2019 bonds issued to the Michigan Strategic Fund for the demolition of the Joe Louis Arena. That was a $10 million bond issue. That's the only one, according to Bond Council, that required a notice uh, to the public. Specifically, Section 5G of the Home Rule City Act governs when to publish a notice for bonds. This section indicates that a notice to the public is not necessary for the following type of bonds, and it's a nice long list. Refunding bonds or refinancing bonds do not require a notice. Revenue bonds, motor vehicle highway fund bonds do not require a notice. Rehabilitation bonds, judgment bonds, bonds or other obligations issued to fund an operating deficit of a city or other obligations to pay premiums to establish a self-insurance program. Those do not require a notice. Any other bonds could require a notice. Bonds that do not require the city to provide a notice to the public are any other bonds that do not fall into the categories above, which I just articulated. Therefore, refunding bonds, motor vehicle highway fund bonds, which um, Michigan transportation fund bonds that have been issued by the city, and voter approved bonds do not require the publication of a notice of intent. In addition, section 36A of the Home Cities Act, this is a section that deals with financial recovery bonds are issued, expressly indicates that a notice of intent or to the public is not necessary for these bonds. So, except for the Michigan Strategic Fund bonds issued for the Joe Lewis Arena demolition, all other bonds that were issued by the city since 2014 are either refunding bonds, uh, the Michigan Transportation Fund bonds, voter approved bonds, or financial recovery bonds. Therefore, only the Michigan Strategic Fund bonds required the publication of a notice of intent. There was a chart provided by Miller Canfield, and that's attachment two in our report, and it lists all of the bonds that were issued since 2014. 
and the majority of them are either refunding bonds, financial recovery bonds, uh, or um, the Michigan Strategic Bond. So, um, again, just to reiterate, in attachment two, just the $10 million bond that was issued for the demolition of Joe Lewis Arena was subject to a notice to the public. Now, it should be indicated that within 45 days after the publication of a notice of intent, and there was a notice of intent for the demolition bonds for um, Joe Lewis Arena issued. When there is a, a notice put out to the public, within 45 days of that notice, there has to be either 10% or 15,000 of the registered voters to petition about those bonds. If those number of registered electors are um, provided with, with uh, signatures to the clerk's office, then those bonds cannot be issued. The city did publish a notice of intent for the Michigan Strategic LTGO bonds in the Detroit News and Detroit Free Press on November the 9th, 2018. However, since there were no petitions signed by not less than 10% or 15,000 of the registered voters of the city of Detroit, the city received no referendum certificate dated December 26, 2018 from the city um, Detroit um, clerk's office before issuing those bonds, indicating that no more, I mean, after the 45-day period had elapsed, there were, there were not sufficient um, signatures. Therefore, there was no need to have a referendum of those bonds. And we have attached the copy of the no referendum certificate in addition, Mr. Shelton uh, provided in his documentation a list of some of the limited tax general obligation capital improvement bonds that were issued um, since 2014. And we indicate because of the type of those bonds, either they were refunding bonds, um, they were financial recovery bonds, there was no need for a um, public notification according to bond council. And then finally in our report, we indicate that uh, Mr. Shelton, among other uh, concerned citizens, filed a case with the State of Michigan Court of Appeals uh, at the Wayne Circuit County Court. And um, according to the opinion, and we do have a copy of that, um, the court indicated that because they brought their um, concerns to the court after the bonds were issued, um, therefore, um, it, was, it was concluded that the case could not go forward. So, um, Mr. Chair, thank you for that. Um, and we'd like to hear from Mr. Nagley, if possible.
Okay, we'll proceed with Mr. Neglick, uh, then we'll go into some questions. I will state that we have been provided a document uh, from uh, Mr. Shelton, uh, which I earmarked uh, some questions that will be asked that were in uh, his uh, document that he provided, just to be fair. Uh, but Mr. Neglick, could you please proceed um, with your presentation? Yes, thank you, Mr. Chair. And I really appreciate the opportunity to address the um, the committee and anyone that's um, watching this hearing. Um, I certainly spend a lot of time watching council meetings and listening to public comment to make sure that we're sensitive to the needs of the, the people that we represent or that, that you as the elected officials represent. And I just wanna say um, the issuance of bonds is a highly regulated enterprise. It's something that we are extremely careful about um, I want to just mention, and I'll, I'll not take a lot of time with this, but for anyone at home that maybe doesn't understand exactly what a bond is, a bond is the way that a government borrows. Sometimes corporations also borrow by issuing bonds. And what makes it different than a loan that you would get from a bank is instead of um, paying the, the, getting the money from the bank from, from your loan, putting it in a bank account and using it for the purposes that you intended, uh, when a bond is issued, it's actually sold to the public. So in the case of our Prop N bonds, for instance, we sold those using Bank of America and our other banker was Siebert William Shank, and we sell those bonds to the public. Um, so not only are we represented the city by our bond counsel, Miller Canfield, but the um, bond issuer, the, the bank that helps us issue it, in this case, Bank of America, Siebert William Shank, they engage a lawyer and, and um, someone who's highly knowledgeable in this, and, and typically it's been Dykema on the other side. So before we ever issue bonds, both lawyers for the city and lawyers for the bank that are help, helping us sell these bonds to the public, carefully look to make sure that we haven't violated any bond statutes. Uh, notice, as Mr. Corley said, would be one of them. Uh, the other that's come up a lot in public comment is the city's um, debt limit. Uh, and the calculation of that debt limit. Uh, that was the subject of the lawsuit. And as Mr. Corley indicated, the court concluded that we had not exceeded the debt limit. Um, and and um, once bonds are issued, um, uh, the day that they, you close on selling the bonds, the proceeds are put into a dedicated bank account. So people that watch city council see all the time contracts before, coming before city council that say, the source of the funding is the 2018 UTGO bonds or the 2020 UTGO bonds or the 2021 Prop N bonds. When, when you authorize a contract at city council and then there's spending against that contract, as it's time to make those payables, we draw the money from a dedicated bond account. We don't commingle it. It's in a dedicated account and those proceeds are kept until we transfer them to cover the payables um, when, when authorized contracts um, have spending. And again, contracts authorized by city council. Um, the other thing that happens is once bonds are issued, uh, annually we have to give continuing disclosure um, 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 obligation re uh, reporting. Um, we, we publish our annual comprehensive financial report to the um, public markets. And these bonds, they trade every single day. So it's not just that the investors bought them and they sit on them. Our city bonds trade in the market just like stocks trade in a stock market. Bonds trade in the bond market every day. And investors look to those disclosures to see if they want to buy those bonds. And so in addition to our filing our annual comprehensive financial report, we also have annual uh, reporting that gives comfort to those bondholders that we're doing uh, what we said we would do. 
Um, I just want to comment in terms, because there's been a lot of public comment about illegal debt. Um, I can assure everyone, we do not have any illegal debt. Um, the, the way that the um, limit is calculated, the debt limit in the state of Michigan, is it's a two-part test. The first part, and you've heard a lot about this from public commenters, the first part is 10% of the state equalized valuation for the local government. In our case, we have an SEV of, of $10 billion, so 10 per, approximately 10% of that would be about $1 billion. Then there's a second test of, and you've heard public commenters talk about it, assessed value equivalence. And it's a number of things, but largely it's taking your distributable state aid and dividing it by a millage rate. Um, our millage rate is not 20, as public commenters have indicated. It's actually been heavily reduced to 19.95 mils. And um, a millage rate is a dollar per thousand. That's the reason that the decimal changes. So the 19.95 converts to a 0 0.01995 to do that calculation. That would give us another billion dollars of um, authorization. So combining the first test, the billion dollars from 10% of SEV and the second, we would have a debt limit of $2 billion. And as the court noted, um, even though they said that the uh, complainants did not prove that we had violated the debt limit, even if that second calculation was right, we only have bonds that count against the debt limit of, of um, approximately 750 million. So even if that second argument that you hear about at public comment all the time was true that we did something with the decimal on the millage, which again, I'm very confident in our math, but the court concluded that even if that was right, we're still under the debt limit. So, so that's a non-issue. The other thing I just wanna you know, tell the committee and, and any residents that are listening or citizens that are listening, um, when we exited bankruptcy, we had total bonded debt of $1,763,000. We report to city council every month um, an OCFO report. At the end of each quarter, so at the end of March, June, September, and December, we include in your report um, the amount of debt that's outstanding. So we've done that every single quarter and all the time that we've been together. And the report that council will get later this month will show that we actually have less debt outstanding than we did at bankruptcy exit. So we exited bankruptcy, $1,763,000. Um, at December 31st, $1,654,000. So we've actually brought our debt down from the amount we had outstanding at bankruptcy exit. And what's interesting is it's not just that we paid down $100 million. We borrowed 500 million of, of new money. So we've borrowed an additional 500 million, um, largely those UTGO bond issues, the 2018, the 2020, and the prop end bonds in 21, the 10 million for the Joe Louis Arena, and the 125 million from the Michigan Transportation Fund. And then we've paid back more than 600 million. So our debt is actually down. Um, we're, we are not over our debt limit. We don't have any illegal debt. And we, you know, we have worked very hard since bankruptcy exit to rebuild our credit rating. So it's very important to us, um, of course, always to comply with laws. But in the case of the city, we went through a devastating thing with the bankruptcy that ruined our credit rating. And so proving that we do everything properly is very important to us. And again, as I indicated, the fact that we have Miller Canfield, longtime bond counsel who was with us during the bankruptcy and lawyers on the other side representing the banks it would be very hard to violate these statutes without lawyers, you know, raising a flag and, and letting us know that we're, you know, we're, we're doing something that's, that's inappropriate. So 
Mr. Chair, I hope that helps. I think the LPD memo was was excellent, not because it backed up what we've been saying, but it it let, it, it puts the facts out there. And again, it, it pains me when I hear public comment, you know, talking about illegal debt or us violating um, debt debt requirements, especially when we're working so hard to rebuild the city's credit um, credit rating. Um, it's just, you know, it's not good for the city to have people watching council meetings thinking that, boy, these people haven't learned anything since the bankruptcy. They're still doing illegal things. We, we are not. We, we are um, uh, fully compliant as, and I appreciate the LPD report that, that indicated that. So thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Neglick. Uh, we will go to uh, questions for members. Uh, I will start, though, uh, with a few questions. First, uh, I will let Mr. Shelton know we will. Uh, refer this letter that you have submitted to us, uh, submitted to us to the clerk, and we are now we're we're hearing uh, from our departments today uh, in this discussion. Uh, so we're not doing a back and forth. Members of the public had an opportunity to speak on this line item during public comment, uh, and that is what we afford everyone as customary to other committees as well. Uh, so, uh, but. In the interest of your concern, because I do want to address your concerns, uh, there are a couple of items that I noted uh, that I want to ask those questions uh, that you had. Uh, one of them was uh, there's a mention on page two in your letter about motor vehicle bonds. Uh, so I want clarification. I don't know if you have a copy of the letter, Mr. Corley or Mr. Whitaker, um, uh, but I will read an excerpt of it. Uh, it talks about uh, that uh, Mr. Whitaker indicated that motor vehicle highway fund bonds do not require notices for referendum pursuant to the Home Rules City Act. Uh, so I want to clarify about motor vehicle bonds or transportation bonds. Uh, obviously, to remain germane uh, to what is at hand, I don't want to go too deep into UTGO bonds, but I do want to talk about the differences between them both. Uh, this uh, discussion is marked for limited tax obligation bonds, or LTGO uh, bonds, should I say. Uh, can you let us know a little bit about motor vehicle bonds? Again, just to reiterate, uh, are these LTGO bonds or are they UTGO bonds? UTGO bonds, from, the, from my understanding, require, uh, those are the bonds that require public notice and LTGO does not. Is that correct? Is that what was stated? Mr. Chair, um, these are a type, the Michigan Transportation Fund bonds, which were issued in 2017, um, these are a type of revenue bonds because they're repaid through the gas and weight tax uh, revenue that the city of Detroit receives every year. Um, and so they're really a type of a revenue bond, and therefore they would not be subject um, to, to notice. But maybe Mr. Nagley might have something to add. Yeah, uh, through through the chair, I totally agree with what Mr. Corley just said. Um, since um, these occurred in the prior council, um, I just wanted to talk, talk about these bonds. So in 2017, and in, 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 um, both Councilmember Durhall and Councilmember Young, you were um, um, uh, elected officials at the state of Michigan. So I'm sure you'll recall this. The state of Michigan increased the amount of um, um, gas tax that would be uh, returned to cities. And what the city did in 2017 is at about that time, we were working on the strategic neighborhood fund um, to 
um, you know, um, I'll, I'll point to the, um, the, the neighborhood or the commercial district on Livernois, just south of Eight Mile. Those streetscape improvements um, are, are partly financed and, and largely financed with, with our share of the gas tax. So in 2017, when we realized that we were going to be getting incremental money from the state, rather than spend just a little bit each year for the next 20 years, the idea was let's borrow against those bonds, as Mr. Corley said, a type of revenue bond. The repayment stream is not coming from the general fund, it's coming right out of our uh, gas tax. So what the state of Michigan does for these bonds, when we're getting our distributions of our, our gas tax, it goes right to a dedicated account. The, these bonds are actually held by a bank, it's JP Morgan Chase that holds the bonds. And um, so it is a type of revenue bond, and it was done to provide a big upfront slug of money that we could use for those neighborhood, or not neighborhood, but streetscape improvements in the commercial district. So again, council will recall that when there are contracts that come before you for those improvements in commercial districts, this has been the source of funding. So again, maybe more than you wanted to hear, but just I wanted you to at least know the background of what created that it was just us accelerating the ability to use that incremental gas tax from the state of michigan to jumpstart this work that we all know is so important to rejuvenate our, our commercial districts outside of the downtown area so again to clarify the transportation fund bond and was that in the amount of uh, 124 million five hundred thousand dollars Yes, sir, it was. And, and uh, we've actually been paying that down. Um, the amount outstanding that you'll see on the report that you're going to get later this month, we're down to 106 million. So we've been paying those down. We don't have any in, intention to issue more of them. But yeah, it was a one time thing to take advantage of this incremental money from the state. And exactly as you said, sir, the amount that, that we issued was 124.5 million. And those fall under the categories of revenue bonds, correct? Uh, yes, sir. Now, I haven't seen the um, new memo you're talking about from Mr. Shelton, so uh, um, I'm sure you'll you'll send that to us and we can, you know, um, ask bond council to comment on the specific citation that he's um, that he's raising. But yes, um, our, our council was Miller Canfield at the time we issued these. Uh, JP Morgan, again, had its own lawyer, Dykema, and both lawyers concluded that we did not need to make public um, um, public disclosure because this was a type of revenue bond, not a not a bond that's being paid from the general fund. The um, the what's behind the statute to issue it is, if you think about it, UTGO bonds are voter authorized, so you wouldn't go back to the voters to ask them if it was okay to issue bonds that they already told you it was okay to issue. So UTGO bonds have already been voter authorized. The purpose of the statute was when a local government is deciding to use some of its general fund money to cover, to cover debt, um, the voters have a chance to uh, do a referendum, as Mr. Corley indicated. So um, these are not in our LTGO category of, of bonds. And let me just ask for the record, because in, in, in Mr. Uh, in his letter, he asserts uh, that the MTF bond will potentially cost City of Detroit at least $139,398,968 in funding that is received uh, from Michigan Highway Fund allotments as well as possibly tax dollars from the general fund. Could we address that? Um, I'd have to check his math, Mr. Chair, but I think what he's indicating is just like any loan, when you borrow $124.5 million dollars, 
and we didn't get it all up front. It was what was called a delayed draw, a delayed um, draw term loan. So over a series of years, we drew down the loan to this maximum amount of the 124.5 million. And so I'm sure what he's referring to at that larger amount is we have to pay it back with principal and interest. So the difference between the 124.5 and the number he cites um, is probably the interest that we'll pay which is the, you know, as we all know, when you borrow money, you're paying interest for, uh, to compensate the person who's, who's loaned you those funds. So that's the reason that it would be a higher amount. But it does, it, um, uh, as you said, Mr. Chair, it does not come, the, the debt service does not come from the general fund. It comes right off the top from our gas tax that we get from the state of Michigan. Uh, let me ask about another assertion in this letter. Uh, since we are talking about transportation fund bonds, uh, it seems that he has indicated in, uh, to the provision 247.651E section 1E in the Highway System Act 51, PA 51, which I'm sure Vice Chair and I are very familiar with on the state level. Uh, this says that no contract or agreement by any board or road commissioner shall be effective until approved by resolution of the legislative body of the incorporated village or city concern. Can we address that issue uh, fairly quickly relative to the transportation bond, maybe legal? Um, Mr. Chair, I guess I'd, I'd like if we could to see that and I'd like to have bond council comment. Um, my sense is that he's re, he's picking a different statute than the um, statute that would cover the kind of bonds that we issued. We're, we're not a road commission. Um, what what this, quite frankly, was was just taking our gas tax that we get from the state of Michigan, using it as security for a loan, so that we could do improvements in our commercial district sooner than we would do if we did it over time. Mr. Chair, Mr. Whitaker, yes, sir. Yeah, I just want to make a point. Um, Mr. Corley refers to bond council. Mr. Naglick refers to bond council getting legal advice on this. This is a highly specialized area. I've been here at the city now 20 years. I have never given any advice to city council on bonds. Bond council is highly specialized. Bond council makes in excess of $500 an hour. I do not. <laughs> and uh, bond council's... Uh, uh, legal liability would be on the line if, as Mr. Nagley is saying, there's an error in any of this transaction. I've always advised counsel to rely solely on bond counsel as far as giving their assent to any bonds brought to their attention for vote. And thank you for that, Mr. Whitaker. And, and, and so even clarifying, you know, this report that we're talking about today, that's that comes from our bond, bond council. Exactly. Uh, not specifically just from LPD, not specifically uh, just from our law department or OCFO. Uh, the folks who we have hired to deal with bond issues relative in the city of Detroit, based off of their know-how and the law, that is what they have issued to us in the report relative to what has been in question, correct? That's correct. Okay. Thank you. Uh, and so I don't know if members have any questions. Uh, relative to this issue. Uh, again, uh, just to clarify, Mr. Shelton has been provided with this report from LPD? Yes, yes, Mr. Chair. We provided the, the report to Mr. Shelton and everyone else who's asked 
and uh, we're available to answer questions, but they will be consistent with what is reflected in the. Okay. Uh, and so, and members don't have any questions, but one of the things that I, we will do is we received this letter from Mr. Shelton today. If there are questions that are contained in there, there were a couple I wanted to go over as far as that we could that doesn't require an answer from bond counsel, uh, some preliminary questions. Uh, but what we will do is submit this obviously to the clerk. We will submit it to LPD as well. Uh, and we can have some of those questions answered uh, as well at the advice of our bond counsel, which we're required to do because that's what we hire them for. Uh, and so uh, with that uh, members, I wanna entertain a motion uh, to have LPD draft a memo and a report to respond to uh, the recent letter uh, that we have received from Mr. Shelton uh, dated February 7th, 2023. Do I have a motion? Motion. Okay, hearing no objection, uh, there will be a memo, a memo submitted uh, requesting LPD uh, to uh, draft a response to Mr. Shelton's letter uh, in consultation, obviously, with our bond lawyers or, or bond attorneys, law department, and the OCFO's office. Okay. Uh, so with that action being taken, again, we will submit this. Mr. Shelton will submit this letter to LPD uh, as well as the clerk. Uh, with that being said, do I have a motion uh, to receive and file line items 5.3 and 5.5? .5? Motion. Okay, hearing no objection, line items 5.3 and 5.5 .5 will be received and filed, uh, and we will uh, respond with those questions. Okay, Mr. Shelton, we will respond to the questions and the letter that you have submitted. We're moving on to line item 5.4, status of the legislative policy division, submitting a report relative to the policy review of the proposed capital agenda fiscal year 2023 through 2024, through 2027 to 2028. Detroit City Charter Section 8-202 requires the submission of a proposed capital agenda for the next five fiscal years on or before November 1 of each even numbered year. Uh, who do we have queued up? Uh, I believe we should have, uh, or are you going to speak to this as well, Mr. Corley and? Edward King from LPD, sir. Mr. King? Uh, so please proceed. Do I have a motion to open up line item 5.4 dis uh, for discussion? Motion. Okay. Mr. King, Mr. Good Corley. Good morning, Mr. Chair. I mean, good afternoon. I'm good sorry, afternoon. Mr. Chair. <laughs> good afternoon, committee. Uh, Edward King from LPD. Uh, what you find here is the, the policy review of the capital agenda. It's a companion document that goes along with the CPC report and, of course, the fiscal review which was submitted to your honorable body in late November. What this is is a general overview of the expenditures through the various departments, and it offers some commentary for different projects, which I hope are thought-provoking and will help this honorable body in making its decision to, to approve the proposed capital agenda. Uh, I'm going to be brief. As you will see, uh, in this report, we also uh, recognize the absence of both the library and the demolition fund. And the comments basically state that both of these departments were utilizing, are utilizing taxpayer dollars 
So for transparency purposes, it should be in the document how these dollars will be used. We go on to go through various uh, other departments and um, projects. Um, the Joe Lewis Greenway, the um, city airport, and in general, rec centers. Um, as far as the Joe Lewis Greenway goes, um, it's, it's our opinion that there should be more public engagement regarding the Joe Lewis Greenway. We understand that it's going to be a, a pathway uniting communities across the city. However, it's our opinion that this rollout should be um, better better done in the community because uh, a lot of people do not know what this will be when it comes to fruition. Um, they really don't have an idea of how the programming will go into it. Uh, there might be security issues. There might be an issue re revolving around electronic surveillance. So some of these things should be more uh, more readily available and rolled out as this project goes forward because it's about 30 or 40 million dollars from uh, a few funding sources that goes into this project. City Airport, we were glad to see that um, after decades uh, the administration is finally on a path of putting this uh, this facility to some viable use and we, uh, the administration has seemingly uh, scrapped the plans to have a, a major commercial carrier. And so the plan is to go forward and make this a, a premium regional airport in our city. And we're looking forward to what that might bring in the next few years. Uh, rec centers in general, uh, we feel that uh, Everyone in the city of Detroit should be availed to the same recreational opportunities. And we don't understand why there can't be a recreational center in each district. And if that's not a possibility, we, we would like to, to know why not. Um, uh, this culminates, the report culminates in, in two recommendations, and they revolve around the decommissioning of the public lighting department and Fort Wayne. Fort Wayne, um, they, the, the administration is allocating, allocating some funds to the, 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 the curator center. Uh, it's, a, it's a center where they keep valuable um, items. And it's one building. It's a roof uh, and a boiler that they're replacing in the building in Fort Wayne. Um, with that being said, Fort Wayne is a large facility. Um, we are sure that it needs a lot more maintenance and a lot more money put into it. It's always been um, swirling around um, what, who's going to pay for the um, maintenance and upkeep and renovations of this facility and how that will be done. We know that it needs more maintenance than just that one building. 
and more funds should be allocated. This is an um, a issue that our historic designation advisory um, board will bring, bring up also. Uh, as far as the decommissioning of the public lighting department, this has been an issue that swirled around for decades because it has been said that it's been coming, but now it's supposedly here because they allocated dollars towards it. We've never done this before in the history of the city, so we don't really know how much this is going to cost or the method by which they will go about accomplishing this. And we think that that should be uh, more prevalent, this plan should be more prevalently displayed. Uh, if not in this um, uh, capital agenda, it should be done in another method to this honorable body and the rest of the city. I'm here to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. King. Uh, any questions on the capital agenda? I see we've been joined by the uh, wise Mr. Todd, uh, who is online. Do you have anything you'd like to add relative to the capital agenda, Mr. Todd? Thank you, Mr. Chair. Good afternoon to you and the members of this honorable committee of city council. Uh, just uh, following up on what Mr. King said in his opening, uh, you will be formally receiving the full CPT report and recommendations, whereas up until now, you've only received our recommendations in the form of the document that council acted upon, <clears throat> excuse me, two weeks ago, wherein you sent the request for recommendations to the planning director. So you should have everything uh, from LPD in totality, uh, uh, well, formally to the clerk's office by the end of this weekend uh, in time uh, for referral next week and the public hearing on this matter. Uh, the only other thing, as I mentioned to Mr. Corley uh, and Mr. King and Ms. Short are also aware, we probably will look to engage with the administration prior to the public hearing in order to have some establish some common ground and be best prepared for uh, this committee receiving the matter at the public hearing. Thank you for that very much, uh, Mr. Todd. And, and just to, you know, obviously I know there are a number of council members who have provided dialogue back and forth of what they would like to see in the capital agenda that may or may have not uh, been reflected or addressed. Uh, I know the public hearing at that time is uh, the adequate time to, I guess, make those requests, but noting uh, that members of the entire council don't sit on the committee uh, you know, we are, we have been, uh, or we will be asking, uh, for just some dialogue between LPD as well, uh, through you so we can understand, uh, what council, the other council members who do not sit on this committee want. Uh, so those requests could possibly be made during the public hearing as well. Uh, and so I look forward to that dialogue again. I appreciate you, Mr. King, for, uh, your presentation and bringing up uh, some of the issues which I assure you are some, on some council members list uh, as well uh, anything further members all right well seeing none uh, do I have a motion to uh, receive and file line item 5.4 motion okay hearing no objection that action shall be taken thank you mr. Todd thank you mr. King and as always, Mr. Corley, but we are moving uh, next to uh, line item 5.6, uh, status of Council Member Fred Durhall.
request to review the state of Detroit retirees retiree payment and upcoming pension payments relative to the 2023-2024 budget. Uh, members, we have a motion to uh, discuss line item 5.6. Motion. Okay, thank you. Uh, this is going to be a robust discussion today. Uh, we have Mr. Naglick, we have Mr. Watson joining us. We also have Mr. Corley if he would like to chime in. Uh, as you note, uh, we have members of the public who call in uh, during public comment, uh, even to our office, to know about or to ask about and inquire about what can be done for, for uh, our retirees. Uh, it is my hope that out of this discussion today, we can kind of get some clarifying answers of what we can and what we cannot do, uh, as well as what we are bounded by due to state law uh, and uh, coming out of the bankruptcy and plan of adjustment and things of that nature. So uh, I am looking forward to this discussion uh, and also hope, uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll have something that comes out of it uh, to maybe some ideas we can do to help uh, some of our retirees. So uh, I know we have Mr. Watson on. I, I, you can lead uh, today's uh, discussion, Mr. Watson. Uh, Mr. Neglick, if he'd like to chime in, and then I will go to Mr. Corley uh, to wrap us up, and then I'll go to members, uh, member questions. So uh, please take it away, Mr. Watson. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, thank you, members of the committee. We're happy to be here today to talk about the city's pension obligations. We have a very, very short slide presentation. I know we're a bit late in the day, uh, so we'll be very brief and make sure we have plenty of time for questions and discussion. Uh, if I may share my screen. You may please uh, grant sharing capabilities to Mr. Watson. Thank you, and, uh, and everyone can see that. Yep. Yes, we can. Yep. Well, again, uh, thank you for having us here today um, to talk about this very important um, issue for the city of Detroit and our future finances. Uh, we're here to, uh, today to talk about uh, the city's pension obligations. Uh, again, so I'm Steve Watson, the city's budget director, and I'm uh, joined by Mr. John Naglick, the Chief Deputy CFO and Finance Director. So just a little bit of quick background. So the city of Detroit um, has two overall pension systems, the police and fire retirement system for uniformed police officers and firefighters and the general retirement system for all other city employees. Um, effective on July 1st, 2014, as part of the city's bankruptcy and its plan of adjustment, uh, as well as the uh, the grand bargain um, and changes to state law, uh, the, these systems were split into two components. So there's what we call the legacy pension plans, which in the various legal documents is referred to as component two, um, which are the, the plans that existed prior to the bankruptcy. And those plans were closed and frozen effective June 30th of 2014. Um, so those plans, um, you know, effectively... Uh, stopped uh, the liability stopped growing on that day. They they were um, locked in place, uh, and so those plans, um, which still remain very large, um, have a combined liability of over five billion dollars with um, over three billion dollars in assets. And so when we talk about the assets being less than the liability, that's when we talk about a pension plan being less than fully funded. 
So as you see here, the police plan is 76% funded as of the last fiscal year, and the general plan is 63% funded. And those plans have a combined over 26,000 uh, members. And so members are a combination of people who are already retired, people who may still work for the city, but have vested pension rights in these old plans. Um, and so those represent all the people that the city, you know, have to pay pension benefits to, which they've, which they've earned um, from those frozen plans. A uh, after the bankruptcy and for all active employees today, um, are earning pension credit in new hybrid pension plans, which are called component one in the various plan documents. And so that's for all work people are doing since July 1st, 2014 and through to this day. And both plans are what are called defined benefit plans, which is, you know, a traditional pension where, you know, you work a certain number of years, you reach, um, you reach a certain amount of service. Uh, and then when you reach retirement age, you get a, a monthly retirement check, um, as opposed to like a 401k retirement plan where the city makes a contribution and it's on you to make investments and the like. Uh, the hybrid plans are very new, um, much smaller in size so far because they've only been around since 2014. Uh, combined liability of over $500 million and, and assets of over uh, $500 million, nearly $600 million. And so what uh, you see here is those plans, which started um, on uh, solid footing and the city has been making contributions to um, between 30 and $40 million a year in the budget every year, they are currently more than fully funded. Um, uh, total membership has grown to nearly 10,000 uh, active employees and retirees. These plans are in, in great shape. Um, it's, you know, the issue when we talk about the fiscal year 24 pension cliff is really these legacy plans that, again, are, you know, closed, frozen um, as of the date, June 30th, 2014, um, so can't be changed. But the city is still obligated to pay out those frozen benefits. Um, they, they didn't go away. Um, we still have, a you know, a, a uh, an obligation to those retirees to pay out uh, the benefits um, that were uh, closed and frozen during the, the bankruptcy process. And so just to illustrate, when we talk about the pension cliff in fiscal year 2024, I mean, this illustrates what we're talking about. So on the far left of the graph, you see a few very small bars and then um, some empty space and then a very large pop-up in fiscal year 2024 when the city resumes making annual contributions to the pension, the legacy pension plans. And so the, the way the bankruptcy plan of adjustment designed this was that for 10 years, we would make very minimal pension contributions to the legacy plans to allow the city to reinvest in services and, and city uh, uh, facilities and infrastructure, removing blight, basically rebuilding the tax base in the city so that when 2024 came around, we'd have higher revenues and could pay down this uh, legacy pension debt. That being said, from a budget standpoint, that's very challenging because you're going from through fiscal year 2023, the year we're in right now, the, the plan of adjustment envisioned we'd have nothing in the budget. And then in the next year, we'd find $118 million of room in the budget to pay, pay start paying down this debt. And to be clear, the cliff isn't a one-time payment. It's we start paying over $100 million every year, and we do that for another for, for a full 30 years. So this expense, this fixed cost in the city budget is going to be with us for a very long time. And so back in 20, uh, 2016 and 2017, you know, the city early on after the bankruptcy recognized that 
okay, well, we can't go from paying nothing to well over $100 million all in one year. Um, this, this pension liability is you know, a major obligation of the city, and we need to start planning ahead for when that bill will come due. And so um, what the, the mayor and the city council um, uh, were, uh, uh, put together back in uh, 2016 and 2017 was a plan to st start setting aside surplus dollars into an irrevocable trust fund that can only be used for future pension payments called the Retiree Protection Fund. And so as the name implies, that's you know, to protect uh, our retirees um, such that you know, the city will make all of the retirement benefit payments that are due, that we will never you know, run the risk of not being able to make our annual pension contribution to pay those benefits. And as you can see, since fiscal 18, we've steadily built up this balance every year uh, through both the budget process and as one-time surplus dollars are identified, you know, starting with, we started at around $100 million. And through the current fiscal year, uh, we're, you know, we're at about $463 million. And we're about to propose to city council, which we'll talk about some more next week, an additional $10 million we'd add to, to this uh, fund. Uh, and so this strategy really is twofold, you know, to, to amass financial resources so that we have a very large buffer in place to, um, to, to start paying the annual pension contributions that uh, resume in fiscal 24. But also, and which we'll see on the next slide, in addition to building up this, this, you know, this huge reserve, it also has given us a, a mechanism to start building more space in the recurring city budget to, uh, for the pension contributions that come back online in fiscal year 24. And so instead of going from that sharp cliff you can see this uh, graph, which I know has a lot of pieces to it. Um, you can see how the green bars on the left, which is our recurring budget contributions to the Retiree Protection Fund, transition to these blue bars, which is the general fund making a, a share uh, every year of the annual pension contribution. And so instead of, I'm going to flip back real quick, this very sharp cliff, we have this steady ramp up when you just look at the blue bars towards fully phasing in the city making the annual required uh, legacy pension contributions from the city's general fund budget. The key thing here is while the budget gets to benefit from a gradual phase in, um, because we have this retiree protection fund, which is represented by the orange bars contributing to the pension plan as well, where every year we're making the full pension contribution, it's just that the general fund burden gets to grow over time as our budget and revenues grow over time. So instead of a sharp cliff, we have a gradual ramp up in how um, our budget pays for these ongoing pension contributions. And so as you can see here, based on the latest actuarial valuations from the pension plans just uh, from this past month, under a 30-year amortization, and amortization just means um, how many years we have to pay off the pension debt, um, it would be $118 million every year, and then it would pop up another $18 million about 10 years from now when the grand bargain contributions from the, the DIA and the foundation community um, expire. And again, this gives us a very smooth ramp up in um, making our pension contributions. But that being said, one of the things we've observed um, over the past decade is the estimate of the fiscal year 24 annual or the annual pension contributions beginning in fiscal year 24, it's been pretty volatile. And that's for a couple of really big reasons. One, um, because the plan isn't, the liabilities aren't growing, it's a fixed liability. One of the main determinants of how much we have to pay every year is how much money the pension plans earn in investment returns every year. And as we all know from what you 
see and hear about the stock market lately and, and investments generally. You know, there's been a lot of volatility over the last few years. Um, you know, one, returns are always kind of up or down every year. They, they don't always hit an exact target uh, based on the calendar. But then also, you know, we had the, the pandemic had a major impact on investment performance. And the time we're in right now has been certainly challenged. And so as you can see from this graph, this, this general fund share, the pension contribution, has bounced around anywhere from, um, you know, $111 million to almost $200 million, depending on, you know, the investment performance and the actuarial assumptions that the, uh, the retirement system is making. Um, currently, at the far right you see in the orange box, um, you know, we, we have a bit more of a favorable outcome in recent years compared to the past. And that's because the pension plans updated a lot of their actuarial assumptions last year, which reduced the liability. Um, and one of the main remaining sticking points is, and, and we're continuing to uh, discuss with the retirement systems, is will the city have 30 years to repay this pension debt or 20 years? And so at the far right, you can see with the current numbers that we're working with, the difference between a 20-year uh, repayment timeline or a 30-year timeline is $23 million every year coming out of the city budget. And for context, you know, that's the size of a lot of city departments. Um, you know, that's a substantial amount of money from the budget every single year. Um, and in addition to how long we have to pay off these, um, these obligations, Again, um, you know, the, uh, this year has not been the best year for investment performance, um, as, as that is added to the calculus that could push up the contribution next year. But we have reached the point where the retirement system in the latest numbers they prepared will set the, you know, the bill that will be due in it for the budget that we're going to be working on in, in a, month, a month from now. Um, and then again, the contributions we're going to have to you know, live with as a city for many years to come. And just to illustrate... Again, this is what it looks like with 30 years to repay the pension obligations. If you go to a 20-year, you can see, yes, it gets paid off faster, you know, where we're done in 20 years instead of 30 years. But you can see how the sort of the blue bars here are a lot steeper than they were on the earlier graph. And that's because every year... Um, with the same amount of retiree protection fund resources, we have to draw it down faster to pay a higher annual contribution. And so what that really means is, yeah, we can make the pension payment every year, but then because these blue book bars are larger, it means we're going to have less flexibility to do other things with the city budget, like uh, continue to improve and enhance city services. Um, you know, as we talk about things like um, you know, bus driver pay and things like that. Those are all, you know, new expenses that the city budget has to bear. And if this pension cost is, is higher, um, it is higher, it means we have less flexibility to do, you know, things like that. Um, and so with that, you know, we're happy to take any questions uh, the committee may have uh, and happy to go back to any um, you know, slides or graphics that you might be interested in seeing. Okay. Uh, did Mr. Neglick want to weigh in or... Yeah, thank, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, so, so through the chair, um, the only thing I wanted to add, again, just to be sensitive to the fact that we listen to public commenters, you've heard from a public commenter who indicated that this, even though Mr. Watson said these plans are frozen, that we've gone back to the bankruptcy court for waivers. Uh, so um, probably not everyone realizes this, but the city's bankruptcy case is still open. There's still a Judge Tucker who has now taken over for Judge Rhodes. There's some loose ends in the bankruptcy that the lawyers are still haggling with others about. 
Uh, the biggest one that we we uh, have in front of the court right now is just this decision on is it 30 years or is it 20 years that that we have to pay off this liability. But I wanted to speak to the waivers that we've obtained. Um, when we've gone back to the court to ask for a waiver, what we're saying to the court is, yes, we recognize they're frozen, but court, we would like to make a modification to the plan. Uh, so those waivers have really been very limited. Um, for the most part, they've dealt with our public safety unions. So DPOA, DPLSA, DPCOA, uh, they've all extended their drop period. Um, I'm sure council knows what the drop is, but residents might not. Um, a police officer has the ability to, once they re achieve um, retirement age, to decide to continue to work for the city. And at that point, they don't continue to accrue new pension benefits, but 60% of the benefit that they would get gets paid out of the fund into a, um, a separate annuity for them. And um, um, what the um, city administration has done with the unions has um, um, entered into agreements where we, we would let those people be on the drop program for a longer period than was envisioned. Those waivers, the court has said yes to because they actually save our, save us money. Um, you know, once someone goes into the drop plan, if they retire, they'd be getting 100% of their benefit. When they're in the drop plan, they're only getting 60% of their benefit. So actually, it's a savings to the city, and we have to prove to the court with this waiver request that it really won't cost us money. And the court has said yes in all three of those cases for all of our public safety unions, um, all of our um, uh, police public safety unions. Um, the other waiver that we obtained for the general retirement system is um, when COVID happened and we um, um, put employees into the work share or furlough program, people were required to pay into the pension plan, but if they didn't work 140 hours in a month, they got no pension credit. Uh, that wasn't fair it was creating a windfall to the city that we didn't intend to get so we went to the court and said could we give pro rata credit so people got credit for the hours they worked during work share and and furlough and the court agreed so those waivers when you've heard public commenters say well the city has gone back and gotten waivers it's not a waiver to pay more money to the uh, frozen benefits it's to modify the plan to actually save the city money so i just i wanted to point that out and as, as Mr. Watson indicated, you can tell we we agonize a lot over our future long-term liability. And with what I commented on earlier, our, our long-term debt is one of our long-term obligations. This is an even bigger long-term obligation that, you know, that we work on. Um, we have member Young, who's a member of the police and fire retirement system with us. We have member Sheffield, who's a member of the general retirement system with us. So these, um, these retirement systems are very important to us. We, um, we want to continue to make every payment to retirees. And our retiree payroll is huge. Um, between the two plans, our retiree payroll is $500 million a year. So this is a significant obligation to the city. And as Mr. Watson's slide deck indicates, the idea of this retiree protection fund to make everyone more comfortable that we're going to be able to follow through on our promise to the retirees that their reduced benefits, which hurt a lot during the bankruptcy to take those reductions, that we're not going to have to go back and, and try to reduce those at some future point. It's all about how are we confident that we're going to meet those obligations to those approximately 20,000 retirees that are in pay status right now. So, so thank you, Mr. Chair. I just wanted to add that. Thank you, Mr. Nagley. Mr. Corley. Thank you, Mr. Chair. 
um, having you know to live through the bankruptcy um, personally, it was very painful, very painful. I recall um, from our emergency manager, uh, Mr. Orr, having on the table a 20% cut, a 20 to 25% cut in pensions. So come out of bankruptcy, and it's still painful. 4.5% cut for general retiree, uh, general retirement system um, 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 uh, participants. And for the police and fire retirement uh, system, um, no cut in the pension um, benefit, but there was a removal of the COLA, cost of living benefit. Um, about 55%, 45% was removed. And going back to the general retirement system, all of the COLA was removed for the general retirement system. All that was painful. What I really feel was hurting retirees the most is the removal of health care benefits. So when you retire, um, say, you know, I think on average city employees retire around 50, 55 years old, you know, maybe some 60, which means that you do not receive, coming out of bankruptcy, retiree health care from the time that you retire up to 65. Because when you turn 65, you can't receive Medicare. So the only thing that was established coming out of bankruptcy uh, to somewhat mitigate that loss in retiree health care, but it's, it's not nearly enough. There were um, VIVAs established. And when you see the bonds that we talked about earlier, the B notes, those B notes were issued to fund um, VIVAs, which are Voluntary Employee uh, Benefit Associations, or VIVAs. Those VIVAs are now funded, and they allow for individuals that retire from the city that are under the age of 65 to receive a monthly stipend. And it's, it's not enough, obviously. So I, I think the sti monthly stipend is like $125. And we know that when you have to pay for your health care, you know, out of your pocket, the premiums can be a lot. It can be hundreds of dollars a month. So to me, that's the lion's share of the pain that retirees are facing. It's the fact that there was a loss, a heavy loss, in the retiree benefits, health care benefits. Um, but to ensure that retirees at least get a pension, although, albeit a reduced pension, the city and the city council back in 2015 or so agreed with the administration to establish the Retiree Protection Fund so that we can at least pay the pension benefits, although they're, re they're reduced, pay a pension to these uh, individuals. Um, so, you know, I really don't want to go much further than that. Um, I, I do want to indicate, though, that coming out of bankruptcy, if the pension systems reach a certain funding level, there is a formula that can kick in that can start to restore some of those pension cuts, the 4.5% cut, um, the loss of, of the cost of living um, benefit, and it's based on when a pension system reaches, again, a certain um, 
funding level. So right now, police and fire retiree system is funded at 76%. And I'm wondering, maybe Mr. Nagley can share some light on this. I'm wondering, because the general retirement system is at 63%. So I think the threshold when the formula kicks in is when the system reaches about 75%. Police and fire retiree uh, pension systems at 66, 76%. So I'm wondering, can Mr. Neglick share any light on, is there a possibility that this formula can kick in so that some of the pension cuts, especially for police and fire, police and fire retirees right now, can receive some of that restoration of their cuts? Um, and I think there's a certain time period as to how long the pension system reaches that certain funding level. It might, they might have to reach that level and be at that level for a year or two. So maybe Mr. Nagler can share some light on that. Well, you know, th so through the chair, I can, um, I'll just say, yeah, they're very complicated provisions regarding restoration. Um, as we all know, the stock market has had some, you know, um, real volatility to it. Um, you know, during COVID, we were all surprised when the stock market was going up while we were in a pandemic. And then the Federal Reserve most recently decided that, you know, the best way to try to bring down inflation is to increase interest rates. And, and so that's had the opposite effect on the market. But the police and fire system actually got its head above water. And in, in years where we exceed this target, um, there's a reserve fund that's established to start restoring benefits. Um, and again, as Mr. Corley indicated, it's complicated because just because you can re partially restore a benefit, there, you have to be able to prove that it's going to continue to stay that way. So we actually got one, you know, one year where police and fire did set up this notional account, actually working now with the actuaries to determine how much of a restoration of the COLA can go to those police and fire um, members. But it unfortunately was just a one-time thing because since the Federal Reserve started this aggressive raising of interest rates, the, the market's gone the other way. So the market would have to have a turnaround, but again, we've, we've got substantial um, assets in the market. I'm personally somebody that believes that over the long-term, nothing will outperform the stock market. It's, it's the best place to have long-term money. So as Mr. Corley indicated, there are complicated provisions, but the retirees were represented by attorneys during the bankruptcy who, who very reasonably said, well, if there is a big turnaround in the stock market, we don't want these cuts to be permanent. We've got to have a provision where these, these um, restorations can occur. So uh, I hope that helps. Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Nagler, Mr. Corley. And this is the last one. Thank you so much, Mr. Chair. So I know there's been um, suggestions from the public, you know, can the city use uh, general fund dollars, opera dollars, to restore some of the pension cuts? And um, the response that we've gotten from the administration is that that is disallowed, that is not allowed under the plan of adjustment. Uh, I don't think council, though, has received an official opinion from the uh, law department, so you may you may want to ask the law department to give you an efficient opinion about that. But what we've heard is that it's not allowed. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we were going to go down that route once we got towards the end, because I know there are a lot of questions as well. Uh, but I, obviously, we were provided a document where members ask a number of questions just to let the public know. 
uh, relative to uh, our retirees benefits and some of these are questions that we get all the time that come into our office from our retirees uh, I will start before I turn it over to the rest of our members with a couple questions that I have just to put on the record um, there is a question that comes to me all the time relative to uh, what we can do uh, if we desire if we desire to give more money uh, to our retirees uh, could we pay them a one-time stipend uh, as we have done other departments. For the record, can we uh, dive into that? Do we have someone that can give us an answer to that today? Uh, I know there are some issues generally due to the plan of adjustment saying that we cannot. Uh, and so kind of wanted to have the ability to discuss that. So can anybody weigh in on that? Yeah, Mr. Chair, I, I, think, I think again, um, you know, the law department needs to provide a legal opinion. Because I, I believe um, counsel has asked in the past, can we use some of the ARPA dollars, as an example, to provide a, a stipend to retirees? Um, and uh, the answer was no. But again, I don't think it was a legal opinion that was provided. So I suggest that the committee you know, receive a legal opinion from the law department. Okay, and it was my hope today that we would be able to answer some of those questions or maybe get it from the law department, but I guess we sh should make an official motion uh, relative to that. Um, and with that, I I'm going to ask for two things because, again, these are important questions uh, that we get. I don't want to just suggest in an opinion and we get a response back via email and it's not transparent to the public that gets and they won't have an opportunity to hear it. But I do like where we have started with this. I think this has provided some answers uh, that we have not. Uh, what I will say uh, as well, and to Mr. Naglik's point earlier, I believe that we, uh, and to your point as well, Mr. Corley, I think that folks forget uh, how tough it was during furlough days, uh, how many layoffs occurred during the bankruptcy. I know Member Young was in the legislature. I was on my way to the legislature. Uh, at the time, and I can remember just the difficulty uh, and, the, and the responses uh, from city employees going to Lansing saying, what can you guys do to help us? What are we going to have when this bankruptcy uh, is over? And the city has done a tremendous job of on the road to recovery. We're not there yet, which is why we're having that discussion now to ensure that uh, during the bankruptcy, those who made sacrifices and we said we were going to come back and we're obligated to ensure that those sacrifices uh, don't go uh, unheard. Uh, we're, we're on the road to recovery in 2024 to start repaying those sacrifices. And that's why it's important to ensure we remain fiscally stable and do the things that we need to do and, and so we don't go backwards. Uh, so as always, at the forefront of my mind, chair and budget, I know other members as well. Uh, so I'm going to ask for two things before I turn it over to questions. One, uh, do I have a motion uh, to have the law department draft an opinion on how ARPA and general fund dollars can be used relative to retirees? Also, I'm going to go to you in one second. Also, uh, if the city can help or do anything with the COLA before we reach the 75% threshold. And then the final is, can the city help with ASF recoupment? 
Do I have a motion? Motion. Okay. Hearing no objection, that action shall be taken. I will now turn it over to questions from members. I'll go to member vice chair first. Chair recognizes vice chair again. Thank you, Mr. Chair. I appreciate that. Uh, Mr. Corley, good to see Ms. Naglick. So Watson, always good to see you guys. And uh, Ms. Naglick, I'm sorry about uh, you getting all that attention from the WWE thing. I didn't know it was going to be that much of a response when I was doing it. Uh, so I apologize to you guys for that. Um, I, I just wanted to say, first of all, um, the response that I have is I'm looking at the legacy plans. And it's saying that we have 63% funded for the general retirement system. And I was wondering to whoever wants to answer this, if we keep going down what we're going down uh, this route with the 30-year amortization rate, when will that eventually hit 80? Because I understand 80 is when the fund, when the, uh, fund is fully funded at 80%. If, if, if I'm wrong, correct me. But do we have the year of when that will reach 80 what, on the current trajectory we're on now? Um, so through the chair, we um, we don't have a specific date or a target. I mean, it depends a lot on what happens with um, the, the market. Okay. Uh, one thing to keep in mind, though, is even though these legacy plans were closed and frozen, because all of us that are um, in the pension plans, when we retire, we can choose a form of benefit, not only to extend for our life, but for the life of our spouse or, or children. So the payouts, the life of this plan, it could take 100 years before the last retiree benefit is paid. Okay. So at 30 years, even at 30 years, we would get to a point where we're at 100% funded, but we've still got a lot of years to go as we um, um, pay out to the remaining people in, in this class. Um, so um, through the chair, I don't know if Mr. Watson, you have uh, any other thoughts on that? Uh, sure. And through the chair to member Young, uh, I mean, yes. Yeah, so all else equal, a 30-year repayment plan means that um, it, it'll take longer to get to that 100% funded ratio. But as Mr. Naglick was explaining, you know, the, the way that the actuaries do this math is that if it's a 30-year amortization, it means after 30 years, I mean, if, if everything goes according to plan, after 30 years of payments, you'll be 100% funded at the end of the 30 years. If it's a 20-year amortization, you'll be 100% funded after 20 years. But as we were discussing earlier in the presentation as well, you know, um, a lot can happen over that time horizon in terms of investment performance, um, other actuarial gains and losses that, you know, that change that result and could either speed up a, a higher funded ratio or slow, slow it down a little bit. But every year, the actuaries will recalculate the contribution to say, again, at the end of the 30-year period starting 2024 under a 30-year repayment, you'll be at you'll be at 100% funded. And the way they adjust for that is, if you know if we make a payment next year and the investment performance uh, underperforms the next year, then all else equal, the payment will go up a little bit uh, the year after that, and so forth. So that that amount can vary. The amount we'll pay every year will vary every year based on all of those factors. But again, the the objective of the repayment, you know, you kind of similar to when you think about you're paying off a house with a mortgage at the end of the of the loan, if you will, you know, you're fully paid up. Um, and, you know, again, with pension plans, as Mr. Nagel said, until the last retiree is paid, you know, you know, you have a liability. Um, but the funding methodology is that after 30 years, uh, enough assets have been amassed so that the assets themselves and the in, in the investment earnings on those assets will continue to pay the benefits instead of the city paying them. 
Um, I mean, that's that's the you know the, the you know the uh, the plot this would take. Okay, so I see what you're saying. So basically, because cause maybe I'm misunderstanding this, because I'm because I'm thinking that the way in which this is set up now, the um, funding that we have at sixty three percent, if 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 you if you shorten that, you're going to have to pay out more money because it's a shorter period to get to that target. So if you have some things that are that that don't go our way in the market per se, you know what I'm saying? That potentially could harm us more than if we have more money to be able to spend. And isn't it if we have more money, if we have and, and does and does this also um, affect at all the how much the pension is funded with how much how much those pensions uh, money are paid out, or is that some, or is that something that has to be changed? locally in terms of how much pensioners are receiving because that's what i'm because that's what i'm getting i'm i'm getting a lot when i was out there talking to constituents that you know the fire and pension guys almost got what they what they lost in the bankruptcy and the general retiree guys didn't and so the reason why i was asking and if i'm wrong correct me maybe i'm maybe i'm shooting off of you know going way off on a tangent here but I just thought that one, the more money that you had to be funded means they would be paid out what they'd be paid out. But also, if you have more money in the fund, potentially you can make up for those losses. Or is that something that's just not in the cards? We're just going to stick to this fixed schedule and we're going to pay it without 30 years and that's it. Uh, so uh, through the chair to member Young, uh, so, so the, the amount that retirees receive in the legacy plan, as we were discussing earlier, is is frozen, and so that amount doesn't change okay. uh, for as long as they remain, you know, entitled to those benefits. And that's state law, uh, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's okay. a it's a you know the, the the benefits are 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 set, so the liability okay. is known. Um, but to your point, um, you know, as we pay down, as we as we pay money into this plan to fund those benefits. Um, you know the the investment performance, uh, how the plan fares. You know, um, you can kind of will, will over time change how much we have to continue paying in every year. But but again, um, as you were alluding to at the beginning um, of the question, it, you know, there really is like a, a the main trade off isn't about if the city does a twenty or thirty years. What does that mean for what a retiree receives with benefits? That's already set. What twenty or thirty year amortization means for the city is. Um, it, just as you said, if we do, if we pay it off sooner and the funded ratio increases faster, the trade-off is what else the city has as priorities to use its budget dollars for. Um, if you do it over 30 years, the payment's lower. Um, it takes longer to fully fund it, but then the city, you know, budget has more flexibility to fund other priorities, um, you know, such as the kind of litany of things we'll be talking about very soon at, at, at budget time next month. Uh, again, if the if the twenty under a twenty year amortization and a, and a higher payment schedule, yeah, it'll be paid off in twenty years instead of thirty years. Um, but for the, that twenty year period, there's the city will be able to fund fewer other priorities. And then this is my final question. Before the question, question uh, go, go ahead. ahead. Would the clerk uh, note that we've been joined by Member Benson? So noted. And this is my final question. I just wanted to ask you because you, you brought up a great thing about investment. From my understanding, it the the investment committee is something that's done internally. 
Like, we don't have any say-so over that. Their members kind of pick their own members. They kind of have their own internal, you know. Um, I just, I, I'm not asking you for an opinion, but I am asking you for, does that, I just have a hard time saying that we can control the money that we have and we have a say-so over the money that we invest in terms of putting money into the pension from the city coffers. We don't have really any say-so over how that money is invested once we put it in the pension fund. And so I'm not saying that we're operating blind, but it's kind of like we're operating without really any influence, in my opinion, over a critical part of this fund. And I think that the public should have more of a say-so over these dollars because you can lose this very easily. You know, especially if there is a, um, you know, God forbid, um, a, you know, economic, you know, um, recession or calamity that happens. And so I think there should just be more of a, 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 a participation from the city's aspect, at least so the public can understand in terms of that investment committee. I, I, again, I know I, I don't want to ask you for, I don't want to ask you for your opinion because I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It's not what you're here for. But do you think that this potentially could be ran smoother if the city had more participation with that? Or do you think what this is is fine for the long term, the way they're doing it now? If, if, if the economy stays the way that it stays. Well, through the chair, I would, I would say, you know, let's all recall what the bankruptcy did. The, the grand bargain that everybody recalls with this infusion of click cash from the state and the philanthropies, um, the state has already paid off its liability, but the um, philanthropic organizations are going to continue to make payments for 20 years. Okay. Um, Mr. Watson showed you that on the chart where he showed when the grand bargain ends, the city's contribution goes up. So the, the um, plan of adjustment said for 20 years, these independent investment committees are the ones that make the investing decisions. And, and through the chair, as you, as you know, Member Young, even though you and I are on the police and fire pension board together, we're not on the investment committee. We can attend it. We can watch what they do. They seem like they're professional investors that have a pension consultant that uh, helps them um, allocate their money to different asset classes. But by design, whether we like it or not, for 20 years, we don't have the ability to try to change that without upsetting this grand bargain that still has money flowing to us. And and through the chair, you've brought up what we point out when, when um, notably our police and fire group wants to accelerate the city's contribution to 20 years instead of 30. One of the things we say to them is, as Mr. Watson said, recognize that by you asking for your money sooner, that will trade off things that the city can do to make the city a better place to, to to live and have more stability in the future and more money in the stock market is not always better right if you if if we could you know right now if to fully pay off the pension liability we would need 1.7 billion dollars so um, if we had 1.7 billion and we put it all in the um, in in the investments it would be as you point out managed by somebody else not us and, and if there was another big market event, you know, some, you know, some calamity that, that occurs that, you know, always is a possibility, um, you, we could lose all that money too. So there's, 
something to be said for sticking with the 30 that the plan of adjustment assumed because it it balances the fact that we you know we the city need the money to continue to restore services and 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 build the city that everyone wants to see and paying it off in 30 years we think is 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 plenty good like accelerating it introduces other risks because they're going to just take this money and put it in the stock market and that is it could be a good thing but it could be a bad thing and you know you, these are precious dollars you hate to put it in and see it get lost yeah, it is my final question i'm just gonna say remember young because what yeah, i was going to say we're going to go, end okay, up go bringing ahead. this line item back anyway oh okay i'll just get it i'll just get uh, ready to say if, if we're going to take the responsibility for when things go wrong we should have the control when things go right that's all i'm going to say thank you yeah, oh, yeah thank you member vice thank chair you, uh, yeah no no problem and we are going to bring this line item back as well uh, because we are going to uh, get the response from law relative uh, to their opinion on what can and cannot be done uh, relative uh, to issuing some type of payment and or uh, uh, relief as some folks put for our retirees in advance. Uh, so we'll be looking forward to getting that information from law uh, as well as to just have further discussions. I'm sure there will be more questions then and then obviously during that time, Mr. Corley, maybe we can read some of these questions into the record that were answered. Uh, already that members posed, other members posed as well. Uh, so with that, do I have a motion uh, to bring back uh, line item uh, 5.6 to be determined? Motion. Okay, hearing no objection, line item 5.6 will be brought, brought back uh, to be determined. Next, we will move on to new business from the Office of Contracting and Procurement submitting resolution of authorization for contract number 6001575-5. A1, 100% city funding, Amendment 1, to provide an increase of funds to include additional city departments to the bill, payment, kiosk, network, contractor, diversified data processing, and consulting, uh, Inc. Uh, total contract amount is, I'm sorry, increased contract amount is 1 million, sorry, 1 billion, no, 1 million, 100,000, sorry. I had to look at that. If it was one billion, I was going to have an issue. One million—it's been a long committee. One million one hundred thousand total contract amount five million eight hundred thousand dollars. Very long committee day. Do I have a motion to discuss line item six point one? Motion. Thank you, Member Vice Chair. Uh, we have the Office of Contracting and Procurement, Mr. Naglick. You've been on here all day with us, so uh, please give us just a brief overview of line item six point one. Uh, in this contract and i think we yeah. also have mr shanti booker online as well yes thank you mr chair and um yes um ms booker is our um contracting and procurement person that we work with on this um this contract was really started by um my former colleague krista mcclellan who was the city's treasurer before she retired and one of the things that we recognized or she recognized was that the city had a has a lot of cash basis taxpayers people that deal in cash and, and those of us that, you know, have been here for going on 10 years, remember that there would be lines, you know, downstairs on, on payment days with people trying to pay cash to the cashier. And DivDat was really first embraced by uh, the water department. So Mr. Brown um, was the one that first found this DivDat kiosk m method of payment because DWSD had the same problem. People that uh, want to pay in cash would have to come down to the water department or one of their payment locations and stand in line. 
So DivDat was a strategy to get the city and, and first DWSD and then the city out of the cash uh, handling business. And it's been super effective, so much so that um, not only can you pay your city water bill and city taxes now, but a number of other city departments have all come online through the DivDat kiosks. And then what happened when COVID hit, we still had city departments that were accepting cash and we wanted to quickly get out of it for obviously public health reasons. And so we put additional city departments on the DivDat kiosk network. Uh, it works really well, Pe people love it. Um, the liability when cash is put in those kiosks is DivDat. So once that deposit occurs, they're the ones that have to come empty them out with their armored car service. Um, but the city gets credit for that deposit uh, as soon as the um, as soon as the taxpayer um, puts their money in. So the reason this contract, it was a five-year contract, the reason it ran out of funds before it ran out of time was these additional city departments that we put on. So this request that we put before city council was to uh, just put enough money on the contract to get us through June 30th, 2023. And then we're also working with Office of Contracting and Procurement to come back to you for uh, our recommendation for what we want to do starting July 1st, 2023, which will be to continue with the with the DivDat network. It's It's been a very effective uh, method, but I would say that the, the crux of why we ran out of funds sooner was the fact that these additional city departments all came onto the kiosk network and the the great news is it really it really works and it's just a, a great way and not only the kiosks that you see here in Pullman Young Municipal Center but their kiosk network is throughout the city of Detroit and even into some of the surrounding suburbs to make it very easy for uh, people to make um, payments so um, Mr. Chair I see that uh, um, Ms. Booker has turned her camera on I don't know if um, Ashante you'd like to add anything Ms. Booker, please proceed. State your name for the record. And then, um, through the chair uh, to the honorable body, Ashante Booker with uh, OCP. And, and Mr. Nagling, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> Literally. Thank you. Glad to hear that. So, uh, members, any questions? Chair recognizes member Santiago Romero. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Through you, um, to whoever can answer this question, and I'm sorry if I missed it, but I'm happy to hear that this has been successful. Are we able to share some of the successes, how many folks have been using it, um, how often? I, I guess I, I would like to see some some figures of the success of, of usage um, and our continued um, investment in this technology. Um, yeah, through, through the chair, I'd be glad to provide it. I don't have it right at my fingertips, um, but um, um, it, it every every single day. I mean, we, you know, we don't, um, with very few exceptions, we don't handle cash anymore. It's actually been great. It's reduced our armored car service requirements because, of course, we don't want people going to the bank with cash deposits. Uh, that's been effective. It's been a super effective way for people to, um, you know, pay their bills. One of the things that Ms. McClellan, again, a former treasurer, did was um, has has a program, um, the Plan Ahead program, for people that um, maybe. You know, and a lot of Detroit residents don't don't have a mortgage, but um, don't want to just you know save up themselves to make their property tax payments on payment dates. So we've enrolled you know um, a huge number of um, residents who make their monthly payments using these kiosks. Uh, but we'll be glad to provide statistics to show you all the departments that are on it. 
Um, DDOT is even, you know, um, going live right now with uh, automated uh, bus tax, uh, bus bus pass dispensers. Uh, so I, I would say the mo most important thing it did was got us out of the cash handling business. Where we probably go next is, and this is what we're going to work on as we get into the next fiscal year, um, creating a payment channel for people that can in one place come come to a portal where you can pay any city department th through one easy to use portal um, again if you're someone who's you know tech savvy uh, but since a lot of our residents are older and are, are cash-based people that you know don't aren't, aren't comfortable using banks or credit cards or automated payment things I, I really think that these kiosks are 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 here to stay because people love them and when, when I provide the statistics, I think you'll be really pleased to see the number of city apartments and the amount of dollars we've collected. Um, it's really it's really helped facilitate um, a much easier experience for people to deal with us. Understood. Thank you. Um, and uh, through the chair, just would love to see those statistics um, to really help me understand uh, the impact that this has made. And just for clarity, um, you did mention that we still do provide an option for folks that are um that don't have access to banks or, or to credit cards correct yes uh, i was going to add add a little bit on to the end of uh, mr nagla's statement through the chair uh that we also provide um through the we, we provide indoor and outdoor kiosks um so that the the uh, the citizens are not limited by any business that they're situated in such as the ones downstairs in the kback building also we've we've They've also included um, a, a bill changers so that those uh, residents and citizens who don't have access to banks uh, can use cash and you can actually get uh, change from the machine. Um, in addition to that, they have a, correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Naglik, they have a, a phone uh, channel where people can call in if they don't want, and that's all done through DivDat as well. Uh, and not to mention, they are, we're a proud partner with DivDat and they're a Detroit based um, not Creole certified, but they are headquartered here in Detroit. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Member Santiago Romero. Any other questions? Okay, hearing none. Uh, thank you very much for that presentation. Members, do I have a motion to send line item 6.1 to formal with a recommendation to approve? Motion. Hearing no objection, line item 6.1 will be sent to formal with a recommendation to approve. Thank you both. Next, we will move to the City Clerk's Office City Planning Commission, line item 6.2, submitting a resolution of authorization for a neighborhood enterprise zone certificate application for the construction of three new single-family houses at 1707-1711 and 1719 Fisher in the East Village Neighborhood Enterprise Zone area. This has been recommended for approval by the CPC. Uh, and I believe we have Mr. Gulak joining us. Members, do I have a motion to open up line item 6.2 for discussion? motion thank you mr gulag please tell us very quickly uh, as we have been in here about three hours now uh tell us quickly about line item 6.2 in this neighborhood enterprise zone certificate application uh and i believe we also have the developer on if i'm not mistaken or no uh, thank you mr chair chris gulag city planning commission uh, we may be joined by uh, kids matt littleton in the uh, audience um i do have a Slideshow I could show or I could be, give a verbal overview uh, up to the chair. Slideshow is fine. Mr. Gulak, you generally move expeditiously. Thank you. Slideshow. 
right. Uh, Mr. Chair, can you see my screen? Yes, we can, Mr. Google. Oh, thank you. This is for you, uh, an NEZ uh, request, a certificate request. Uh, it's located just east of uh, Indian Village and East Village. It's uh, north of Jefferson, um, shown as, as the red dot on this um, map. There's three lots involved here. So there's a question for three different, three new single family homes on three lots. This shows uh, looking at, from Fisher, looking westward, Indian Village houses are beyond. There's vacant land. Um, this area does have quite a lot of vacant land um, to the east of Indian Village. And the developer is, this is in the East Village amended NEZ, which was passed way back in uh, 2005. So most of the area east of Indian Village is, is the East Village NEZ to encourage new housing development. The developer here is Great Water Opportunity, which I believe the council is familiar with. They've been uh, before you for several projects, rehab and new construction in the past years. Here's a summary of the um, proposals. There's three houses, three infill houses. So the first is about 965 square feet, two bedrooms. Uh, the construction costs about 139,000. Uh, the sale price is estimated anywhere from two, 275 to 280,000. Uh, the second one is a little bit bigger. It's 1,513 square feet. Uh, construction costs about 165,000, three bedrooms. And the estimated sale price is 345 to 350,000. And lastly is the, the third unit is about 1,840 1, square feet, three bedrooms, two and a half baths. Construction costs about 197,000 and the estimated sale price is about, about $400,000. These are some of the uh, architectural drawings for that first unit. So one story long, these are narrow lots, 30 foot by 100. I give the developer credit for trying to fit the infill on the existing lots of record. This is the first one. Second one is a one and a half story. Um, as I said, three bedrooms. And the last one is, is more of a traditional two story uh, colonial, but more long and narrow. They do propose some, um, Detached garages uh, at the back of the um, at the back of the unit accessed by the alley. So they do propose parking. And let's see. So that concludes my overview. Um, I'm not sure if we're joined by the developer. I did tell in, inform them yesterday this would be on for your consideration. So in conclusion, uh, staff is recommending approval because it is in the East Village zone, and um, I can try to answer any questions if you have them. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Gulak. Is the developer online? Mr. Chair, the developer is now being promoted. Thank you. And Mr. Hello. Uh, hello. I'm here. Yes, could you please just state your name for the record? Hi, my name is Sarah Pavelko. I, I just, I added Kismet there. I didn't know if um, Mr. Gulak would recognize that it was sitting um, oh. in for Kismet. Okay, uh, do you, would you like to chime in? Is there any additional comments you may have relative to this project? I'm happy to um, give more context on Great Water if you're um, interested, but we, as Mr. Gulak said, you are familiar with us. Um, we are really excited about this new endeavor. Um, our um, we're piloting the construction of three new single family homes um, on this block. Um, East Village, um, as you know, is an area that has long experienced uh, vacancy. 
in, where there used to be um, a significant concentration of single family homes. We've been working very closely with the um, neighborhood association and uh, block clubs uh, there as we design the home and making them aware of what we're, we're um, working on. Um, they're excited to see infill coming and we hope that this project is successful and that we can eventually bring it to scale. And what we've done is built very simple homes that are um, that are uh, respectful of the existing um, single family homes that are there. Um, they're very similar in style. Um, they follow the zoning code. We are not asking for any variances. What we're trying to do is um, quickly develop is uh, develop a model that can be quickly developed and replicated um, so that we can bring this to scale, not just in this neighborhood, but in other areas, um, uh, because we know that single family home development is going to be, is really a vital part of um, the continued growth of the city. One thing I do wanna point out is that, and I apologize for this, um, there, we weren't clear in our communication and um, what Mr. Gulag highlighted as construction costs were only our hard costs. It didn't include like the CM fee, the construction management fees, general condition, um, site, um, the like site grading. It didn't include any of our soft costs or acquisitions. We should have provided our total cost of construction and not just the hard cost. So it made it look like we were charging, we're like we we're making this significant profit um, and I, I do want to um, make that clarification because um, the, the total cost of the project versus the sale price is much closer. And I'm happy to share that information. Yes, could you please share that information with us right now? I think, we're, again, we're looking at three different properties. One construction cost is $139,900. Second one is $165,774. The other one is $197,088. Could you yeah. give us the updated construction cost for each one, starting with 1707 Fisher? Yes, it's $220,000. This is round numbers, um, 260,000 and 300,000. Sorry, um, 320,000 dollars. Okay, uh, and does that conclude uh, your comments? Yes, thank you very much. I and we appreciate the, your review of, the, I actually I wanted to point out one other item is that the, um, uh, the if you look at the mortgage payment for these homes, um, the affordability ranges from seven uh, just over just just around seventy percent AMI to just over a hundred percent AMI, um, depending on which model you're looking at. And so, um, really, our goal is that we can build uh, affordable, replicable, replicable uh, new single-family housing in this city. And this is our pilot program. Okay, thank you. A uh, couple quick questions. Uh, these do have garages attached to them, correct? Through the chair, they are. Um, they are. There are two car garages. They are not attached. I'm sorry, not attached, but I mean that come with these right. that that plan to be constructed. Um, second question is what is a what is the market value around that area? Um, I, I, again, I. I appreciate you giving us the updated construction costs. Uh, when I look in that area, you know, I just want to get an idea of what that market value is. We're looking at for the first 275 to 280, 345 to 350, then 395 to 405. Where are we at close to that market 
uh, value of homes in that area? Through the chair, that is a really difficult question to answer because um, East, that, so East Village really has very limited homes, like recent home sales and um, that are particularly comparable to these homes. So you start looking, whereas West Village has um, a number of homes, but we would not anticipate where you're seeing homes of similar size, um, but they're older, they're going um, between uh, 300,000 to 400,000, depending on the state that they're in. Um, and then, uh, you know, if you go on the other side of Jefferson, you have new homes that are built in more of a suburban style um, that are uh, about, I think they're 10 years old. Um, and those are going for over $400,000. And so, but they're very different character than the homes that we're building. And so the reason why we're starting small with only three homes is that it's been very difficult to figure out what the um, value of the homes will be, what we can achieve, like we're hoping that we can achieve these targets, um, uh, but there isn't a lot of comp data for us to rely upon. A part of the reason why we picked this block is because it's right next to Indian Village. And we're hoping, and it's also one of the more um, uh, occupied blocks. There's a number of, of, there's still existing homes that are occupied there. Um, and so we're hoping to be able to build off of that and support the existing, um, uh, the, the, and, and um, like further expand on the, the, the residents that are already there. Um, and as well as um, uh, benefit from being right next to Indian Village as an anchor. So, so let me say I'm all for building, all for trying to repopulate our city and uh, put more density uh, in our neighborhoods. I guess my question, who who owns the adjacent parcels in that area as well? Do we know that or? I, I don't know. I mean, there's a variety of owners throughout this area. Um, there are also, um, this is an area with um, a property owned by uh, Hans, um, but there are on, on either side of us, there are private owners. Okay. And I can definitely understand recouping construction costs. Uh, obviously, you're not building a home to give it away for free. Uh, however, again, I guess just my concern is when these developments come in based off of what the neighborhood looks like, you know, how is it, how attractive it may be to someone in the neighborhood that's not as populated as of yet to say, hey, I'm going to buy this new house over here that costs ha close to half a million dollars. So, you know, that's that's just my, my question. And I know, like I said, I can appreciate um, the vision to even want to repopulate the neighborhood. It is close to Indian Village, but just was curious about that. Um, you know, how how will buyers look at that, you know, area knowing that there's still a lot of work to do over there. So uh, that concludes my comments. I don't know, members, do you have any questions? Chair recognizes Vice Chair Young. Yes, thank you so much for your time. I just wanted to ask you, what do you see happening with the vacant lots? If I may, through the chair, um, the... Uh, what we, we hope is that our pilot program will prove to be successful and we'll find that there is um, a, a market for um, single family homes. We think that there's a population of people that like to um, rehab old homes. I'm one of them, I just bought one, um, but it's a lot of work. Um, 
And uh, there are also people who just want to come home and never want to think about their electrical, their plumbing, or foundation, or whatever else, right? They just want to come home and the house is done. And so um, there isn't a lot of, you see a few small single family home developments, one-offs. Um, we're really hoping that we can grow this to scale and that we're eventually, that if this is proven to be successful, that we're able to go on and um, replicate it um, and acquire more land um, to do this. Uh, and in talking to the neighbors, um, that it, and that's also, it's a vision, the, the block club, the um, East Village Association, they're, they're, it's, the, the folks who are on that have lived in this neighborhood for decades. Like they can tell, they tell so many stories of what it used to be like and they know and who used to live there and how, you know, how many homes were there. And so that they're also looking to have that come. Um, and I, I do wanna make uh, just reference back to a, a statement that we are really looking to build these homes at different scale that allows different levels of affordability. So our homes aren't, uh, we are not projecting home sales of half a million dollars. The highest is um, just around 400,000, which is a larger model with more bathrooms. But the home starts out at $275,000, the, um, the, the, the smaller home. And um, that includes a garage. And so if you look at, say, like a neighborhood, like the North End neighborhood where I live, um, right now you can't get a home for less than, um, than like $300,000 unless it's in like a considerably um, state of disrepair and requires a lot of work. And so you know, this is an opportunity for someone to get a starter home at $275,000 that's new. Um, they won't have to worry about repairs. So I, I really echo, we echo an agreement that um, affordability is important and it's important to build as we're invested in Detroit. Uh, the, our only projects are in Detroit. And for our multifamily housing projects to be successful, we need the single family housing um, areas in Detroit that have single family housing to be stable and successful. And we really see that integration. And so um, the affordability is, uh, is very important to us, which is why we spent so much time um, trying to get our construction costs low and figure out how to do this um, in a very streamlined manner. Okay, excellent. Thank you so much for that. Appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Member Vice Chair. And again, let me say, uh, obviously, this is not the first time I see you. I said on PED as well. So uh, very familiar with your work, and we appreciate the vision. I guess my, just my question was just more of the concern of, you know, are there folks interested, you know, uh, in this neighborhood, looking at if these new developments come in, you know, will, will that market be available? You know, what are the other rates of the other homes or just questions that we generally have. So again, I appreciate the vision, uh, I really do. Uh, and it sounds like members of that community want to be able to see some new development over there. So uh, chair, rec uh, chair recognizes member Santiago Romero. Thank you, thank you, Mr. Chair. Through you to um, our developer, um, thank you for giving us this overview. Um, as someone that has uh, recently done house hunting as well, and as someone that um, does not come from money, does not come from savings, does not um, uh, really am a reflection of, of, of our residents and, and what we're dealing with, um, the cost of these homes are still um, are still pricey. Um, and I wonder, really my main question is, understanding the cost to build um, and 
um, the relevance to the cost of sale. Uh, looking at your full portfolio, do you offer other homes? Are you looking to offer other homes that are um, your smallest one here is 900 uh, around 900 square feet um, that are that are lower uh, than $300,000. Um, is this something that you plan on continuing to to build? Because um, knowing that would make me feel a lot more comfortable. I understand that we need um, different types of housing, and we have folks that can afford different uh, kinds of housing. But wondering, does your portfolio have more homes that are under 300K, and is this something that you are planning to do in the future? So one of the homes is, um, it, it, right. the, the expected range is expected to be less than 300,000. Um, but um, we, we do not currently have that in our portfolio. In fact, these are our first single family homes that we've ever built. Okay. Um, everything else in our portfolio is rental. Um, so what we envision long-term is that, uh, because we've also heard this from the community that mixed income is very important. And so what we envision long-term is that we want to bring this project to a certain scale um, where we're replicating this. And as we're able to scale single family home construction, um, it, that will lower our costs. We'll be able to buy more things in bulk. We'll be able to have um, bulk agreements with contractors, those things lower costs. And as we lower costs, we want to um, dedicate a, a portion of this, of, of proceeds to um, providing a home um, that, uh, on you know, some schedule that is uh, is for a family that is lower income, you know something similar to like well, I was going to say Habitat for Humanity, but in that situation you volunteer to build it. I just simply mean like providing a home that is actually um, just purely subsidized based off of us scaling um, and uh, reducing the amount of uh, revenue that we would get from the sale proceeds. Okay, thank you. That scaling would allow us to do that. Okay, thank you. That's that's good to hear. Um, it makes me feel a lot better. And I understand how difficult it is um, to develop homes and, and the cost of housing, the cost of everything, um, but feel a lot more comfortable knowing that this is something that you plan on doing. Um, I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Member Santiago Romero. Any further questions from members? Okay, hearing none, do we have a motion to send line item <coughs> 6.2 to formal with a recommendation to approve? Motion. Okay, hearing no objection, line item 6.2 will be sent to formal with a recommendation to approve. Thank you very much, Mr. Gulak. Thank you very much uh, thank to you. our developer. I really appreciate that. Next, we will move to our final line item of the day. It has been a long day, committee members. I appreciate your indulgence and patience. Uh, under the Legislative Policy Div Division, line item 6.4, submitting a report and proposed ordinance to amend Chapter 17 of the 2019 Detroit City Code, Finance by amending Article 5, Purchasing and Supplies, Division 1, Goods and Services, Subdivision B, Purchasing of City Goods and Services, Section 17-5-11, manner, manner of purchase, Purchasing uh, to Provide for the Health, Safety, and General Welfare of the Public. Uh, and this has been referred to our committee. I have a motion to open up uh, line item 6.4 for discussion. Motion. All right, Mr. Corley, please touch on line item 6.4. Give us an idea of what this is and what it does. Uh, you can take it away. Mr. Chair, um, I believe uh, Mr. Hurt, Marcel Hurt from LPD, 
who authored who author this can speak to it? Mr. Hurt. Mr. Leonard, could you please promote Mr. Hurt if you have not already? Good afternoon through the chair, Marcel Hurt, Legislative Policy Division. Mr. Hurt, good afternoon. Please proceed and let us know about this ordinance. Yes, uh, LPD was requested from council member Mary Waters to draft an amendment to the city Detroit procurement ordinance regarding insurance requirements for bidders on demolition contracts. What we have done uh, at her request is provide that under the, the amendment, the requirements for a person that is uh, uh, bidding on a demolition contract would not be uh, subject to have to have insurance prior to bidding or pre-bid insurance uh, prior to bidding. And what will take place is they will be able to bid on the contract. If they are awarded the contract, they will have five days in which they would get the necessary insurance uh, that will include naming the city of Detroit as an insurer on that uh, insurance contract that, it, that will meet the, the needs uh, that are required by the city of Detroit. If they do not comply with obtaining that insurance within five days of actually receiving the award, then they will forfeit the award and, and the award will go to the next uh, available bidder and that person will have uh, the opportunity to get insurance within five days of receiving the award. Uh, this is in to, an effort to enable uh, those smaller uh, contractors that are looking for demolition contracts to be able to bid without having to have the necessary uh, insurance that will, will be required currently uh, in order for them to actually even bid on a project. Uh, so this would allow, open up the, the uh, bidding process to more bidders. All right, and so just to clarify, this ordinance right here uh, would not uh, require those who are bidding on demolition contracts uh, to have insurance at the time to participate in the RFP process and the bidding process, but of course, if they win, they've got to get the insurance within five days, correct? That is correct. All right, thank you. Any questions for members? Chair recognizes member Santiago Ramiro. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Through you to LPD. Um, and sorry for my ignorance, but does this mean that we currently don't require insurance from our demolition contractors? No, currently, you, in, in order to even bid on a demolition contract, you have to have show that you have the insurance that will cover the uh, contract that you're bidding on. This will allow, uh, instead of having a pre-bid insurance requirement, okay. you can get the insurance after you've actually been awarded which gives the opportunity for a contractor to, after they get the bid, to go and uh, probably get necessary financing to uh, obtain the insurance that is necessary uh, to actually uh, have the contract. Thank you. You did mention that in your opening statement. I just slipped my mind. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Chair. You're welcome. Thank you, Member Santiago Romero. You are excused. It's been a long day. So. <laughs> Uh, members, I have no further questions for Mr. Hurt. Uh, obviously, this will have to go for a public hearing if approved today anyway, so there will be questions that will be flushed out uh, if they exist. We have a motion to send line item 6.4 to formal for an introduction. Through the chair. Yes, Mr. Hurt? Yes. Uh, prior to uh, it, it going to, to, to formal, it, it should be referred to the law department for review and approval as to form. Okay. 
All right. Well, uh, I guess under our notes, we had submitting a report and the ordinance was already proposed. So uh, this ha this needs to be referred to the law department. Has it not been drafted? Well, it's, it's been drafted by LPD, but, but has not gone through. Under, under your rules, it requires the law department to approve it as the form. Pardon me. Okay. Members, do I have a motion to send line item 6.4 to uh, the law department? Motion. Okay, hearing no objection, that action shall be taken. Uh, just to clarify, uh, Madam Parliamentarian, there is also a report attached to this. Should we receive and file this report? I would think, uh, Mr. Chair, that you would want to bring this line item back so that once it's been approved as to form, <clears throat> excuse me, then it could be sent to formal session. Thank you, and that way it would not have to be renoticed. Thank you, Madam Parliamentarian. Uh, members, I have a motion to bring back line item six. Well, pardon me first before that law department. Uh, how long will it take us to get this up to form? Uh, through the chair, Graham Anderson, law department. Uh, can we get two weeks just to be safe? Okay. Thank you. Uh, noting that we are going into budget season. Uh, and so the agendas will get longer and get shorter uh, in this particular subcommittee uh, sub as well. Uh, so I have a motion to bring back line item 6.4 in two weeks. Motion. Okay, here, no objection. That action shall be taken. Members, that brings us to the end of our long agenda today here in committee. Uh, we will go to member reports. Chair recognizes member Santiago Romero. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Just want to remind residents that tonight at 6 p.m. we're going to have our budget one-on-one -on -one training with Mr. Corley. Looking, looking forward to that. We're going to be at Comedy Center. Thank you so much. Thank you, member Santiago Romero. Chair recognizes Vice Chair Young. Negative report. Thank you, Member Vice Chair. Negative report for me. Uh, again, I appreciate the hard work of LPD, CPC, our parliamentarian law, everyone has hung on for this long committee meeting today. Uh, we will try to land these plans a little bit sooner. Uh, but with that, I do have a motion to adjourn today's committee. Motion. Okay, hearing no objection, this committee will stand at ease at the call of the chair.